0: Hello, my friends. Stephen Mullen, you from Free Domain. Hope you're doing well. Four great, deep, and powerful calls tonight. Thank you, everyone, so much, of course, for all of your support for the show. Please, please help us out at freedomainradio.com slash donate. That's freedomainradio.com slash donate. Now, I love it if you buy the book, The Art of the Argument, at theartoftheargument.com, but don't forget to support the flagship show at freedomainradio.com slash donate. First caller, Okay, so let's say that you raise your children peacefully. Well, how does that prepare them to deal with crazy people in the real world? It's a common question. This one took a bit of an interesting turn, to put it mildly. The second caller wants to know how you deal with a growing, creeping tombstone-in-the-soul sense of nihilism. And the word that he used to describe nihilism was powerful up front and took us on a very deep course through his life, through his history, and through the possibility of hope for us all. The third caller wanted to know, and it's a typical question, like if you get rid of the state, won't people just be desperately clamoring for a leader, and that leader will then replace the state, sort of like a power vacuum or an authority vacuum in people's lives. And so I tackled that question, and I think you'll find it very important and very powerful. The fourth caller, I think it's important to be patient with this caller. He's got something important to say. He does take a little bit of a roundabout way to get there, but it's an argument for the existence of God that is actually quite interesting. So hang in there for that call.
1: All right. Well, first today we have Rodney. Rodney wrote in and said, I'm a big fan of the peaceful parenting principles you advocate. I had a rather unhappy childhood myself. I was able to grow out of the misery and get my life on track. Now happily married, and we are expecting our fifth child any day now. We are part of a growing homeschool co op with parents who just can't bear the thought of sending their lovely, nurtured children into the sardine factory called public school. At the same time, they have to grow out of the, quote, peaceful bubble, unquote, that my wife and I provide and deal with the real world in which they have to choose their friends wisely, choose their lifestyle, set and attain their goals, and so forth. When children grow up in an honest and safe environment, Will they recognize distrust or untrustworthy people when they grow up? How can you best prepare them for the complexity of real life? That's from Rodney. Hey, Rodney,
0: how you doing? Hey, um, can you hear me okay, Stefan? Yes.
2: Okay. Yeah, so the, the question pretty much um, says it, you know, it, um, I'm thinking back of my life and I think, well, you know, I think of some of the, the junction points in my life where I could have you know say like you know taken the taken the easy route but i i realized oh you know if i want to really you know get somewhere in life and get out of this situation that i'm not very happy with then i really need to um you know do my best and uh, and and really take the high road and and so um, you know i'm thinking of my children i i'm giving them a And a better youth than that I had. But at the same time, you know, there comes a time where they have to plan for themselves and they have to, you know, figure out for themselves what they need to do. And of course, you have a long time to prepare for that. And there's puberty where, you know, children kind of do that automatically to some extent, right? They kind of, you know, want to go their own way, whether you like it or not. So there's that, I think that mechanism to some extent is built into. The human nature if you will um and but what, at is the your, same time, what is what is your
0: I, sorry to interrupt what is your disaster scenario what is the worst case scenario that you see coming out of peaceful parenting
2: i i i think just a a a, a lack of motivation for you know forming your own personality or 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 really saying oh, i'm i'm going to you know have have something that i really like doing that i'm you
0: know going to make like a career out of that or i'm not sure what you mean do you, are you saying that children who are raised peacefully don't end up with an identity
2: um yeah or or just uh, i guess i'm thinking of you know, you know if 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 you're very motivated to you know get make the make your life better then you will try harder than if your life is already good, and you're 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 not desperate, if you will. You don't have that hunger. It's like if you're not hungry, you don't go searching for food. That, that that's that's kind of it, I guess.
0: So then, your abusive parents gave you a great gift by that logic, right? Which was the gift of ambition and, and hunger and, and and a real desire to improve, right? Have you right. have you thanked yeah. them for that lately? <laughs> No, no, I
2: good. have not. I have
0: not so. Good, good. Yeah, no, that's that's not what we want, right? Well, you yeah, know, no, I I learned a lot from fighting that near-fatal illness. Yeah, sure. So you got some good stuff out of a bad situation, but that doesn't mean we want to go and contract another fatal illness or near-fatal illness in order to grow, right?
2: Exactly. So, so how do you get better without having a near – I mean, and that's a good, good point, right? Like, so – you sometimes see these shows on TV where people can walk for the first time because they have, you know, what they call the prosthetic limb, and they appreciate being able to walk. Whereas a lot of people in the world that we live in today complain, and they they certainly aren't thankful that they're able to walk, even though they are, right? So, so how do you how do you instill those levels of appreciation? I guess into people without them not being able to walk.
0: Why do they need that of level time? of appreciation? What's the benefit of it?
2: I think there's a lot of good things in life that people oversee. Um, you know, I, I came to the United States as, as an immigrant, and life here is so much better than where I came from. And I see a lot of people completely missing that And just complaining about the bad stuff, you know, there's always bad stuff. And um, most of it is pretty superficial. And and people, I think, no, 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 there's
0: there's bad stuff in America that is not at all superficial, right? There's demographic replacement, there's imperialistic wars, there's national debts, there's terrible education, there's indoctrination, there's a commie media, like there's a lot in America Uh, And the West as a whole that needs to be fought for. I mean, I get that relative to whatever hellhole you first came from, it's probably a huge step up, but I don't think that Americans are taking it all for granted. A lot of them are fighting pretty hard to try and retain the the values that they inherited.
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, And I definitely would like to see my children on the list as well. Um, I mean, I'm fighting for it and I want them to fight for it as well. And, and so I want to, you know, make them feel really personally that, that this, this is something that, that matters, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to put my, that's the thing, I guess, too. Like, I'm not necessarily trying to put my beliefs into them, but at the same time, they have to think about that themselves as well right so you can't really you know my my parents had certain things that they wanted me to do which wasn't necessarily what what i wanted right so and you know and and maybe that's the answer maybe that's personality just comes on its own and and no
0: okay so i this is a lot of wandering around the verbal backwaters but the basic reality is that we do not do evil unto our children i mean the the effects of that I don't know, maybe I'm missing something and maybe you've got a great point, Rodney, but the the effect, I could care less. I'm not going to abuse my child. I'm not going to hit her. I'm not going to yell at her. I'm not going to call her names because that's wrong. Now, the effects of all of that, who knows? I don't know. You don't know. We aim to do good because that is the universal moral of every moment. Now, as far as, well, what are the effects going to be in 20 years upon their personality and interactions, I don't care. Because there is no scenario under which I would morally countenance the abuse of children. And if you just say, well, I'm going to act on principle and forget about living in this mind-reading, future-traveling, imaginary fantasy world called the effects 10 years down the road then just enjoy doing good and being a good father, which it sounds like you are. And congratulations, I've seen your Adverse Childhood Experience score, good for you. Just enjoy the process of doing good as a parent, as a human being, as a father in the moment. I honestly could care less about the effects of moral parenting on my child when she's 25. Because that's not how I'm going to judge my moral behavior in the here and now. Because you can make up any scenario in the fantasy land called the future. And and you've you've heard me in this show a million times. People say, well, if we have a free society, this terrible thing could happen. It's like, you don't know. It's just a way of avoiding enjoying the pleasure of doing good in the moment. We advocate for virtuous parenting. We can make any kind of scare story we want about the effects of peaceful parenting. I don't care. I'm not going to beat my wife. Say, well, it might make her tougher in the huh. I don't care. You can make up any scenario you want to justify deviations from good actions. We just focus on doing the good actions. There's an old saying when I was a kid, to speak the truth, though it shamed the devil. Do good, though the skies fall. Just be good. I mean, why say, oh, well, it's going to be tough for your kids to deal with crazy people. Well, good. <laughs> you want it to be tough for your kids to deal with crazy people. Or as my daughter said, when I put this question to her, why on earth would I want to spend my time dealing with crazy people, <laughs> right? I mean, if all crazy people speak <laughs> Japanese, and you don't teach your children Japanese, they're not going to have much in common with crazy people now, are they? So, no, you, you, yeah. you, you get them used to good, virtuous, decent, kind people in their life, and they'll recoil from evil people like we have this idea that virtue is sort of like the immune system you know like one of the reasons why kids have a lot of allergies these days is they grow up in these quasi hypoallergenic environments the kids who eat dirt they um they get stronger immune system kids who grow up in the country kids who handle animals they they end up with a less fragile immune system something that is you know more robust and doesn't keep confusing benevolent items for dangerous pathogens so i get the idea that if we mistake virtue for the immune system then raising kids in a virtuous environment is like raising them in a hypoallergenic environment they go out into the world and they'll be beheaded by (laughs) hay fever or something but that's not the way that's the way the immune system works it seems but that's not the way the virtue works so i think that what you're Um, trying to do is grasp for some straw let me ask you this let me ask you this What is the status of your relationship with the parents of your childhood, who abused you?
2: I I get along reasonably well with my dad. Um, I don't talk with my mom anymore. I just, uh, I just decided that my life is better without her than with her. You know, was basically the bottom line. So,
0: and why did your dad get away with
2: things? I'm sorry,
0: I think why, we a, why did your dad get away with things? Why is your dad off the hook?
2: I, I think he he did care for me very much. Um, I, I think his issue is that he, he avoids conflict and so he avoided conflict with my mom and he avoided con- and even if I have a conflict with him then he kind of retreats. He says, okay, okay, okay and he immediately agrees on the surface but then later on i find out actually he didn't agree with me he just kind of said he agreed to avoid the conflict so i would say that's that's the main issue i have with my dad but uh other than that he did treat
0: me well and um wait but who so let me um, just go through your adverse childhood experience score you've got verbal abuse slash threats no family love or support neglect not enough food dirty clothes no protection or medical treatment parents divorced lived with alcoholic or drug user household member, depressed, mentally ill, or suicide attempt. Now, what was your father's involvement in this stuff?
2: After, So they divorced when I was four years old, and, and he was definitely depressed, particularly after the divorce. I think my, my mom is kind of a narcissistic personality, so whatever happens in the world is exclusively everybody else's fault, and I think he was kind of defenseless against that Wait, wait, what do you mean he was defenseless? Um, Hang on, hang on,
0: Rodney, Rodney. What do you mean he was defenseless against that? He chose to marry that. Yeah. It it wasn't an arranged marriage, was it?
2: Yeah, the word defenseless, I mean, he didn't defend himself against
0: that. that No, no, no. He chose her. He dated her. He pursued her. He proposed to her. He got married to her. He gave her children. How is he a victim here? I'm, I'm. Maybe I'm missing something. Some part of the story where maybe he was kidnapped and forced married. I don't know. But how is he a victim in this?
2: Uh I, I didn't. I didn't say so much as a victim. You said was what, what was his involvement. So... You said he
0: was defenseless against this. That's a victim statement.
2: Okay. Yeah. yeah I think I don't. I don't think he needed to be defenseless, but he put himself in that position
0: and he put you in that position by choosing a narcissistic woman to be your mother, right? Yeah. And who divorced who? Do you know?
2: It, it was her. She wanted to leave. And you know, I think basically because she'd already kind of had some, uh, it's not proven, but most likely an affair. And so she wanted to leave. And, um, so she left with me basically.
0: Wait, she left with you? What do you you mean?
2: She left him and took me with her. You know, the courts are pretty favorable to women in divorce cases, so um, she got to bring me with her.
0: Are you an only child?
2: Yeah, I'm an only child, yeah.
0: And did he fight her for any kind of custody?
2: Not much. Um, Why? I guess they... Well, that's the thing. He, he, she she is a very kind of dominant narcissistic um, personality. And if she, and, and he was kind of in this, you know, in this basic, um, how do I say it? Frame of mind that she was right. And so when she told him that that she was unfit, he was in this state of mind that she was right, or he would give in to her, he did not have the willpower to stand up to her. Oh, so he,
0: was he scared uh, of her?
2: I think it's a low self-esteem issue. I think he just didn't have enough self-esteem to really say, no, I am fit to raise a child. And, and you know, there's no reason that you're more fit to do this than I am. But
3: I think he was naive.
0: Wait, who's that? Naive, yeah. My wife is here too, by the way. So.
2: Sorry. Sorry, who's there? My wife is here.
0: Oh, hi. Yeah. How's it going? Is she listening? in?
3: <laughs> Sorry <laughs> about that.
0: Oh no, that's that's totally fine. <laughs> she I. said, she I, said she it was. <laughs> it's going to go public, yeah, so I don't not, mind if people are listening to it. Uh, that's fine. Feel free to jump in anytime. But I'm I'm yeah. a, I'm, a, I'm just trying to follow this, and I apologize if I'm being slow. I'm on decaf in the evenings, but oh. um. Yeah, no, no. So I have, I he was. Considered. He gave way to your mother it must be because he was nervous or or afraid of something right
2: he had really low self-esteem so that that's how i saw it that um he just you know he said you're not fit to raise a child this is a woman's job that kind of thing and then he's like oh okay i guess you're right and um you know so he kind of went along with it um
0: so he couldn't yeah, handle your mother's assertiveness or aggression and so he handed over a 4-year-old to her because we all know that 4-year-olds can handle what grown men can't, right?
2: <laughs> exactly. So
0: Did he yeah. even fight for 50-50 custody or anything like that?
2: No. Um they they married in a way that they didn't have, you know, shared um how do I say it? Like, um, he he already had a, a house and some other assets, and so they married without sharing, you know, the – what do you call it, The common law where they – you know, so he got to keep the house and everything that he already had, you know, before the marriage. So that was something that she negotiated with him. It's like, well, Wait, fine, you he keep gave the house you, he
0: gave you to a crazy woman in return for a house?
4: Yeah.
3: What?
0: Come on. You, are you aware of how this sounds? Um, you, you Crazy yeah. woman, yeah, take my son, but family. I want the house. I won't fight for custody right. for my son to keep him away from a crazy narcissistic woman, but I will fight for the house.
2: He didn't have to fight for the house that was part of their marriage clauses that he got to Keep the stuff in case they divorce.
0: Oh, like the prenup,
2: but uh, yeah, it's like a prenuptial agreement, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: But did the the prenup not talk anything about children.
4: Not. Really. No,
2: not well. I wasn't there when they made it, but you know that's kind of the deal that they came up with, and I guess they got partial. You know, I mean, a four year old doesn't really, you know, understand prenuptials. So no, no, I, know, it's I kind get of that. I'm not. I'm not talking about the. Them, <laughs>
0: I'm not talking about you as a four-year-old understanding the prenup. You understand. So what happened then? Did you spend most of your childhood with your mother? How often did yeah, you they, see they your father? Yeah,
2: close together so I could walk to his house and uh, see him. And my mother didn't really prevent me from seeing him. Um, but I think with her, like, so, I mean, she got these kind of angry outbursts and then um, – Whoever is closest to her is the subject of her angry outbursts. So I think when they were married, then he was kind of the lightning rod, you know, that took all the, all the, all the hits. And then after the divorce, then he wasn't there. And then, so I'm the one who took all her, you know, anger and criticism. And he knew that was, so, so
0: he knew, sorry to interrupt Rodney, but he knew that his wife, your mother was verbally abusive, Right. Yeah. Because he'd taken the brunt of it, right? And he knew, I'm sure, that it would be almost certain that that would continue, except it would then be directed against a four-year-old little boy, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty reasonable thing to say. I mean, uh, you know, he was probably, you know, trying, <laughs> going neater-neater or whatever, but, uh, you know, that's that's his weakness. Going, did
0: think, you say Yeah. <laughs> Is this the new "womp oh, womp"? I don't know what what does "neener neener" mean in this context.
4: I
2: don't think he was, you know, allowing himself to think of it that way, even though he he should have. But I think that's his weakness. I think she he just whatever.
3: Now,
2: yeah,
0: you? he's he's just weak. He and
2: he didn't
3: treat his daughter in law nice either. I can tell
0: you that. Sorry, yeah, sorry. She, can you say that again? Just lean in a bit. I couldn't hear.
3: I said he didn't treat his daughter-in-law very nice either.
0: Well, let's hear about that.
2: That's another, well.
3: But that's another show. Yeah.
4: yeah.
0: I don't no, want It's my show. I can at least ask the question. Um, how How did he treat you, my dear?
3: Well, yeah. My name is Ivy. I'm sorry. Was it Ivy? Well, uh, yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm Ivy. I'm um, Robin But anyway, yeah, he came over one day to the States to visit us. And um he had all kinds of assumptions, you know. He I don't know why, but he when I got to when I got to know Rodney in the beginning, he was really nice, he was nice, you know. I didn't see any well I Red didn't legs. see that no at all, not at all. And then when he um he came over here to visit, I don't know. He just he just—he was just weird. He had his girlfriend with with him. He has a girlfriend now. He and sometimes he would just go take his girlfriend, go out of the door for a walk, and not even say something to me and just disappear. And I was like, okay, well that's weird. Why don't you ask me to come along? Why can't we just go for a stroll together and chat a little bit? Because I wanted to know—I wanted to get to, to know him better because. Rodney and I did not date very long, and then we got married, and I hardly knew his father, like, in the beginning, you know, yeah. I didn't meet up with him a lot. So when he came over, I saw it also as an opportunity to get to know him better as Rodney's dad, part of the family. So he basically was a little bit ignoring me, and later on, when he got back, and when he uh, was back in in, in, uh, Holland, we became a letter in the mail. And it was just a, a letter like you should send to a, a hotel stay you were not happy with.
2: <laughs> like like a Yelp review. That's a one-star Yelp review, you know, where it's like you don't actually call the hotel to have, figure it out, but you just kind of leave a one-star Yelp review. without yeah, well, ever...
3: <laughs> That's not important. Let me just... No, no, yeah, no, no, that's just high, no, one, no, that's important.
0: No, no, that's... Ivy, that is important. So uh, I'm, I'm bookmarking it, but please go on.
3: Yeah, Yelp is important. I know that. But <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I, can, if, I can throw in some examples. No, just, to just kind of one example. It
3: um, he would just uh, accuse me of spending, uh, of uh, basically using uh, Rodney's credit card for all kinds of spends. He would say, yes, yeah, he was in front of the computer all the time and, and, and shopping. That wasn't true because when they were, when he was, when he was here, I, I, I was looking for a job and I said, listen, if y'all don't mind, I have to spend a lot of time before the computer because I'm applying for a job. And it took me hours and hours and sometimes I just needed a break. So I looked on Craigslist, which, you know, something just to relax a little bit, Craigslist or eBay, or whatever. And he interpreted that. He interpreted it like, he probably saw that, and that pissed him off, I think, and accused me of spending all my husband's money, which I would never, ever
0: Well, do. okay, okay, in- hang on, hang on. So the issue is not primarily that he may have misinterpreted your time on Craigslist, Ivy. The issue, and I really, really dislike this, so I'm just telling you it's a personal beef of mine, so take that for what it's worth. I really hate the people who have an issue with you and then wait till they, wait till they leave. And then write you a yeah. letter. Yes. You know, it's like, I was yeah. right here in the room with you. Yeah, you, you could just have just sat yeah. down, that's asked right. me some, some questions, stuff. and we could have cleared it up right away. But it's no, I'm going to yeah. wait till I get back home. And then I'm going to write you a little letter and you can't respond to it right away. Oh, yeah. that's manipulative crap. Yeah.
3: And I tell you this, um, we had some, I I, I, I I, told him a couple of times, I, I said, William, listen. Um, I'm not a person that's holding stuff back. If you want to talk about it, something, just just clear it up. or No, I get that can, sense. I'm not a person. I'm I'm honest, and I'll be I'll tell you the truth. And I'm not winding around stuff. That's what I I told him once because I I could feel sometimes I was walking on eggshells because I could just feel the tension. He disliked me. He didn't like me for marrying Rodney, and I had the feeling that he felt that I stole Rodney from him. That's the feeling I got.
0: Well, of course he's such a wonderful judge of women's characters that of course he'd be objective about you. I mean, just look at the woman he chose to be the mother of his children.
3: Yes. And I don't I'm not in touch with him anymore. When he calls him once in a while. I I don't I don't I don't want to speak to him. I f- I still feel I have to I have to forgive him. I know, but it,
0: Wait, wait. It's why very do you, why do you have to forgive him?
3: Well, I'm a Christian, but
0: Well, no, but you have to earn forgiveness, right?
3: Right. I mean, even
0: God demands that and God is morally perfect. And so God says, I "I will forgive you. But first, before I forgive you, says God, you must be contrite. You must repent. So sure, if he apologizes and says, you know what? I wasn't real nice to you when we were there. And then I wrote you this terrible letter afterwards, which is going to cause trouble between you and Rodney. I mean, the guy threw... A grenade into the tent of your marriage, right?
3: Yes, absolutely. And so if he apologizes, apologizes... Sorry, go ahead. i never heard any apology.
0: Right. So, I mean, forgiveness is something to be earned, right?
3: Oh, I tell you this, there's so many stuff I could talk to you about. It's Rodney that called in. But my no, no, listen, <laughs> Ivy,
0: we, we are talking about it all. Trust me. Well, what are the other things or two that you'd like to mention about Rodney's dad?
3: He, I mean, think one thing and say the other thing. Like we were, I had we we were we were um, when he, when they were here. We said you know let's go on a road trip, and um, we were going out of state, so we had to spend a couple of nights in hotels. And I said Rodney, you know what? The second night we actually booked the motel with a hot tub. You know what? Let's give that to, um,
2: well, they only yeah. had one room with the hot tub. So yes. it's like either we got it or they got it. Yeah. And, and I said, well, so I don't
3: mind it. They can have it, you know, it's your dad. And they would say, no, uh, no, it's okay. Ivy. We, 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 don't need that. And,
2: um, Ivy, I'm here to say that Ivy offered it to them and they declined it. And yeah. then later on they said, Oh, but we wanted the room with the hot tub and she denied it to us. let that's, well, that's- that's just like, you Bullshit. know, you're, yeah, that's BS. It's, uh, it's.
3: Yeah, that kind of behavior. I'm like, very manipulative. And like you say, very weird. Why would you do that? Some, why would you, if, if you would really like your daughter in law, you would not do that? You would treat her with dignity.
0: Well, I gotta tell you, Ivy, I'm extraordinarily happy that you're on the call. Do you know why? No. Because, boy, you hear Rodney's talking about his father, and his father sounds like a sad, low-esteem person who, you know, is kind of like a victim. And, and you know, But seeing it from your standpoint, where we see this kind of manipulative rewriting of history, this letter mail abuse and, and undermining of his son's marriage and the ignoring of you, it's just a different view from what I was getting from Rodney and not really much in line.
2: Well, I think they're both true, you know, and that's, I mean, it's a sign no, of weakness
0: too. No, no, Kids. no, they're yes. not, no, they're not both true. Rodney, no, think- if he, Rodney, if he treated your wife like this, where's your loyalty to your wife?
2: Oh, I am, I, I didn't talk to him for years after this happened. I told him I'm not talking to you. You'd but noticed. he may
3: have treated his wife like this also. I remember, I recall one sure. thing, because his mom visited us, right? And I took a stroll with his mom one day. When Rodney was at work. And I must say, I had a feeling she, she came out. She, she, she told me one thing that stuck with me. She said, Well, there was never any money for anything. and well, always this and that. And one day I had bought, bought a little yard of fabric to make or sew something. I don't know. Anyway. And he would say to her, Oh, that was an expensive little yard of fabric. I'm like, what? Hmm. So he didn't. I don't think. I I think she she yeah she left out of the blue, but I don't think she wasn't happy at all in that marriage because his dad it, it has it, it's it's better now, but I know tales from Rodney there, there was no he he didn't want to heat her on in the winter. He wanted to spe, spe, save money on that. Rogin had to sleep in an attic with the ice on the, the ice on the on the blankets.
2: Every morning and I he... could get up and write my name in the ice on the inside of the window. You know that's how cold it was. So yeah, and your really father frugal.
0: didn't want to spend the money on heating. Is that right? Yeah. Could yeah, he, he afford really it?
3: Frugal.
2: I think so. I think so. Yeah. Well,
0: that seems like a, I mean, it's Holland. It seems like a pretty important thing to have some heat.
3: Yes, in a way, especially.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially because he got to keep the house, which meant that he had some assets, right?
5: So what did did he... he
0: do? So you didn't talk to him for a couple of years because of how he treated your wife and I assume some other things. So, Rodney, what did he do to get back into your graces to the point where you were willing to resume a relationship with him?
2: Well, um, nothing really. I would say. oh well, he did apologize, actually, I'm not a person. Um, but not to her. But he did say, "Well, I'm sorry about what I did." But then I'm like, "Well, let's talk about it because you know, just an apology isn't that valuable. I want to know what you were thinking. You know, how did you come up with this totally arcane behavior that doesn't make any sense?" you know you say one thing one time and then and then in you know later on after it's over you say something else and so and he he didn't want to talk about it at all and so that's definitely a big dense
0: all right so um, what did he need from you that he apologized
2: well just because he uh, so his girlfriend also like their family they were also Kind of getting, and I don't know why they did it, but they were getting him riled up against us somehow, and um, and so they didn't like us somehow, for or like her somehow, and I don't know who started it, but uh, you know they kind of went off on their own thing, you know. So it's was kind of a group behavior, if you can. I guess that's probably the best. Yeah. You know, sometimes people behave differently in a group than by themselves. So I think there was a group aspect to it.
3: Which is ridiculous.
2: Yeah, I mean, he should. uh, It it is ridiculous.
3: What have I done wrong? I mean, I cannot recall anything.
2: And I, I totally. I mean, I, I did stand with my wife on that, and that's why I said, you know, I'm just. uh, I, uh, you know, I mean, I tried to talk with him about it, and then when he didn't really. It's like, well, I'm sorry about what happened, but then it's like, okay, let's talk about it. He didn't want to talk about it. So after that, I'm like, well, I just don't don't really feel like talking to you at all yes, anymore. You know,
3: so. I mean he's evasive. He's yeah. evasive.
2: He still is. I mean this happened like what, six years ago, yeah. eight, seven years ago.
3: Seven years ago.
2: So he still hasn't talked about it. So So,
0: so then so yeah. he didn't really apologize, right? Especially no. if no. you've wronged someone and you apologize to someone else, that's not really apologizing, right?
3: No. no or or I' thought about it for a long time. Maybe he's jealous that we have a good marriage and that, that we have wonderful family and he didn't have that, or maybe he didn't have the capacity to do it or was too much tied up with himself the way he grew up. maybe
0: Ah, no, listen, know? this is the thing. This is a bit of a female habit, which is to try and mind read other people. Who, who knows and who cares? Who, yeah. who cares why people do crappy things? Because every yeah. time One people come up with an explanation, it's like they're reaching for an excuse.
2: One thing that I also really dislike. So, so he's got this weird attitude of like, well, women are kind of there to be, you know, enjo- you and, enjoyed if you know at your leisure and and but no commitments, and that's exactly how for some reason his girlfriend likes that you know, she also doesn't want any commitments. So they're, even though they're, you know, <laughs> 70, 80 years old, that's, you know, they, they, you know, have this really kind of uncommitted relationship with each other. And, but that's not how I want to live my life. You know, that's just not for me. And, and so, you know, I, I love my wife and they, you know, I want to make this thing work through better for, and, and through worse times. Right. So, um, and I definitely stand with her and 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 when they were here, they were actually saying, like, "Oh well, you know we you know we're here together because we have fun, and then maybe next time we go out with somebody else and and so they're kind of like
3: joking about
2: it, yeah, like, making fun of us or almost in a bad way, you know kinda of ridiculing us, I would say, for being loyal, a solid marriage, yeah, being having a solid marriage, yeah. which I really disliked that them doing that, so um, okay. That's let, me, let me. That they just said,
0: how long have you guys been married for? Uh,
4: eight, eight years. Eight years yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Good. So I'm close to double yours. So let me just be annoying and give you a tiny lecture about marriage and loyalty. Now I don't know what your marriage vows were, but a typical one goes something like this: "Will you take this? I'm going to give this to 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 you." as the husband, will you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife, to live together in the holiest state of matrimony, and thereby love her, comfort her, honor and cherish her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep you only unto her for so long as you both shall live. Now, the traditional wedding includes these three central words, forsaking all others. Now, that's very interesting when you think about it, because forsaking all others, they don't just say forsaking all other women, forsaking all other lovers, it says forsaking all others. Now, what that means, and there's a reason why it developed this way, what that means, guys, is that anyone who comes between you and your wife is toast, should be toast, that your loyalty is to your wife, forsaking all others, including parents, Uh including brother and sister, including friends, including anyone who tries to drive a wedge between you and your wife. Forsaking all others. And it's right there. And it's the last promise that is made in the traditional wedding vows. Forsaking all others. Because your father... Has made his choices in his life. He's had his life, he had his marriage, he screwed it up, or she screwed it up, or they both screwed it up. It's rare that one person is better than the other in a marriage that doesn't tend to happen. But Rodney, your loyalty is to Ivy. Now, that means that in any contradiction between your loyalty to Ivy and your loyalty to anyone else, the vow is forsaking all others. Your loyalty is to your wife. And if anyone tries to get between you and your wife, well, a catapult to infinity is the standard response. And
3: (laughs) Yes, well, I've had it with my parents, too. I'm sorry? uh, Horrible, horrible experiences with my parents. I mean...
2: The the catapult to infinity?
3: That always brought us to the brink of a divorce. And I will not bring it up because it's too long for the show. But... uh,
2: I think your parents got in the way more than mine did. Oh, my I mean, God. I didn't let my parents get in the way. Oh
3: no, mean no this... more. Huh? No more. No more.
0: Yeah, no, it. you you cannot. And I, I was very clear with this, with the people around me, that once I had chosen my wife to be my wife and to be the mother of my children, like anybody who tries to mess that up or anyone who gets in the way, or it doesn't mean we can't be criticized. It doesn't mean, no, that's totally fine. But anyone who tries to undermine the bond, anyone who tries to crack the family, sorry. No way. Like not, I won't let it happen, but still continue to hang around. It's like, put down your fucking drink and get out of my house and don't come back. Forsaking all others. And if if it was was my sibling, if it was my parents, if anyone who got between me and my wife, or who downgraded my wife, or who even didn't respect the relationship to the degree that it was warranted, Put down your drink, get out of my house, and don't come back.
3: Yeah. Oh, because yeah.
0: marriages well, much Everyone fact. thinks that marriages yeah. break up just because two people screw it up. No. I believe so, that the majority of times that marriages break up, it's because other people yeah. smash it. Other yeah. people bring in their wrecking balls of yes. bullshit and crack the damn thing. Two people can find a way to get along. It's when all these other people are whispering crap into their ear and undermining and sowing seeds of doubt and flirting with people and just cracking up the family unit. The destruction of a marriage is usually a cooperative venture with lots of people around smashing at it one way or another.
3: Yeah, I've had it with my, uh, my family. They came over. We live in simple housing and basically uh, what it comes down to wasn't good enough for them. They were commenting on it when Rodney was at work, and whispering me like, "Oh, Ivy, this is not way to live. You can't live in, in in those mobile homes, those shitty old mobile homes you guys bought. That's just that's just not good enough." And they would, yeah. I'm sorry. I I, I, I let, and it's my fault. I mean, I admit. I we talked it out, Rodney and I. We, but I let I let him brainwash a little bit, and then I said. I said to Robbie, I don't know about this housing. I really I don't like it. And basically, it—it it, well, we had a whole argument about it. that almost brought us on the brink of a divorce. I'm, I'm telling you, just because my parents wasn't good enough. Now, listen, listen, Let me let me
0: enough. just be clear about that. So if someone around you, let's say it's your parents, Ivy, sit down with the both of you and say, we're a little bit concerned about the quality of the housing. What's the long term plan? This is going to be where our grandchildren grow up. That's fine. Yeah, it's fine to get feedback. And it's fine for people to say, you know, maybe you could do a little bit better with the gifts that God gave you or whatever. The issue is when they talk to one person and sow seeds of doubt and problems and conflict and then step back and let it all play out. That's manipulative as hell and incredibly destructive.
3: That's, yeah. They did not say it the way you said, we are concerned is that. They were just, it was just gossiping. Like. uh, Yeah,
0: it it
2: didn't come as. Oh my God, it was just mean. It was
3: like.
2: And there was nothing concrete there, really, no. like, oh, maybe the sewer is going to get plugged, or maybe the no. this is going to happen, no. and, you know, none, none of that, I mean, nothing actually, like, no. genuine concern, it was more of just kind of seeding conflict, basically.
3: It was um, it was ugly. On the surface, I wouldn't say no, nothing, because my dad and my mom, well, my dad wanted to come over to just help her up a little bit, because we needed some stuff replaced, said, well, you know, while I'm here, I can, I can just help a little bit. That's fine. Well, I said, you don't need to do it. We can also have fun. I said to my dad, I haven't seen you for quite a while. We can do, we can go here. We can go there. And it was right away. No, I'm uh, not going to do that because then we're not going to finish this. Then I better go back home. That was one thing. I was like, well, if you're not here for my relationship, where's the love? That was one thing. Then one evening, um, I was sitting in the living room and Rodney was already. Went to bed, and I could. The walls are pretty thin, so I could hear conversations between my mom and dad. And one of the conversations I heard was like, "Oh, I can't stand it, and I don't, I don't understand how, how Rodney uh, can do this to my daughter, and, and yada yada." Well, the housing is not that bad, I can say you that. It's just in Holland, everything is pick and span. But anyway, they were just behind their backs, Bath, mouth, Rodney. And just this gossip, you know, and I was, and, and then I heard a story. You can't believe it. My dad was talking about one day that he was helping out Rodney. And Rodney had a bag that brought some chocolate. He had it in the bag and he had told my dad, if you want some, you just take some. That's okay. So Rodney comes there occasionally and, and, and takes a chocolate.
2: Well, we we went to the store and I asked him, do you want something? He's like, no, no, no. And then I'm like, well... I'll- I'll take one and another one to go, you know, and then he didn't want any and then it was kind of almost the same thing, right? Where then he didn't want any and then after I then after he didn't get any, then he complained to his wife that <laughs> I didn't I didn't get him anything and,
3: and that like, Robby was a bastard.
2: And that I was a bastard for not offering him any food. And I'm like, Well oh. you know, you and, and it's not like he didn't he never talked to me about it, he just talked to her about it. And so what's the status kind of, of you
0: guys with these delightful in laws? What? Um, what is the state of, of for... that relationship at the moment?
2: I think we talk to them about once every four months.
3: I don't speak with them much often because they're, I can't trust my mom, so I can't trust her with personal stuff. That's another thing. She's yeah. really I I, I I was pregnant with my first son, and um, she, they came over, and I—I I, well. I I didn't want to tell my mom, because my mom, as soon as she hears it, she brags it all over town, and I didn't want that. I wanted to announce it myself to family and friends whenever I'm ready.
2: Well, worse than that, like, say, Ivy had had some medical issues with her her first pregnancy. Not
3: much, but...
2: And we said, don't tell other people, because our medical things are not somebody else's business. And then they put it... She. Not just at any time, but the day after they came back home and they had Internet access, she put it on her Internet blog that she had had this medical issue. And then, by golly, they're still having a baby. You know, who would have thought that kind of thing? Oh, I was so mad. That's like Gossip 101. That's like, you know, all the – that's like what – the way gossip, you know, papers talk about Brad Pitt or whoever. So – You know –
0: Yeah, publishing private medical information on a public blog. I don't even think that's legal, to be honest with you. Like, I really don't think that's legal. And
2: and, and we specifically told them.
3: Yeah, I said, don't. I always have to say that to her. Don't. If I want. But then she does it anyway. And also. And now
2: we found out because what happened was actually we didn't. Initially, we didn't know. And then we got a letter from her cousin or whatever saying, oh, well, congratulations. And we really feel sorry for your medically and like what how did they what? know that? right and then we found out that she had put it there so
0: so guys guys yes, hang had. on hang on hang on i think i've got a pretty good picture and i i sympathize <laughs> i really do but hang on hang on so what are you teaching your kids by still being in relationships with these people
4: they
2: they don't even well
3: we don't get them involved much i mean of course they sh- my parents and they send birthday cards but yeah, I, I don't know. That, that's a question I ask for myself. What if they grow up? How? What? I mean, well, I don't want to have much involved with those people at all. Why well, do you? Why do you have?
0: What's What's the value of having any involvement with these people? Help me understand that.
3: No. I,
2: right. Right. No, I've the, I've made that case, and so I I don't talk to my mom anymore. I talk to my dad, you know, once in a while on the phone, but I'll usually call him when I'm you know, driving or something, so it's not, you know, something that involves the, the kids. and
0: um, No, but it has mental I, space. Listen, I can hear the emotional energy and frustration and anger yeah. that is going on with this. Listen, I mean, I had a pretty terrible mom, and I talk about her, but there's no pressure. There's no emotional tension behind it, right? This, this is like raw emotion for you guys, and it's very strong. And I'm concerned that it's taking up your mind and taking up your heart, whether it's like a conversation every couple of months on the phone or whether, who knows, right? But it's raw. And the degree to which you're tied up with this stuff is the degree to which you're less available emotionally for your children, right? Because you're concerned about your kids' exposure to crazy people in the future, but aren't you the portal by which crazy people affect the family in the here and now?
2: Well, they don't talk to our kids, really. I don't... No. Okay, you
0: know, you're not listening to what I'm saying, though. Right? Which is what that it's What's strong it? emotional stuff for you guys, right? And you'll hear it when you listen back. You really want to make yourself heard. You're very passionate. You're very wound up. And I'm not criticizing you. This is all very frustrating and annoying stuff to be around. But why be around it at all? Yeah. Yeah.
3: Like, why don't you teach well, your
0: kids? Why don't you teach your kids? You don't have relationships with crazy people. You don't have relationships with people who betray you. You don't have relationships with people who try to fracture your relationship and drive you close to divorce. You don't have relationships with people who take your private medical information and publish it on the public internet. You don't have, because then you're then you keeping your kids safe right now. You're not keeping your kids safe because you're telling them crazy people can be in your lives and be in your minds and be in your hearts and they can take up rent-free space in your brain.
3: Well, that's true, and, you know, the kids are very young, but, you know, so it, it doesn't play a part in their… It does. Well, he's
2: saying that it, does. it, plays it does. a part it does. in our minds, yes, and therefore I it takes away… That still takes away from them, and
3: yeah. so…
0: You discuss it, you think right about around. it, you're triggered again, you're concerned about it, you're worried if they call, and, and trust me, guys, you know as well as I do, that as your parents get older, they get needier, right? Yep. Yeah. And what happens if if they still have their hooks in you, and you still like why do why are they willing to tread water and and because they're keeping you around for when they need something,
3: yeah, well, I've thought about it at one sibling, and I, I told Rodney I said, I, at this point, if something happens, uh let him clear up the shit. I'm not doing it, I'm not even signing I, I'm like I don't care." <laughs> They're out of my life, basically. I don't call I don't call them hardly anymore, I tell you. I'm done with it.
2: Her, her parents somehow kind of favor him, and they help him with lots of things, whereas they're not helping her. And so that was really bothering Ivy a lot, and and that's actually something right. I and said, Right, no, like, so and the reason – I'm going to make the
0: case again. Sorry that. to interrupt. So, so here's the thing. It's still bothering her a lot. It's still bothering you guys a lot. And that's the price you pay. For staying in a relationship with people you can't trust who betray you and try and destroy your marriage. Right. Yeah. So why would Any, you want to have relationships with these people?
3: Yeah. At all. Get rid of them. Aren't
0: you? Yeah. I mean, look if, if there's some multi-billion dollar inheritance, you say, okay, well, we'll, hold, we'll you know, whatever, right? I mean, or you know, well, you know, well, you know up, it's so. once every couple of months they try to destroy our marriage, but they make us laugh till we pee every other day, you know, like whatever, right? That that my dad's fine until he has his second scotch, and then he's terrible for 10 minutes or whatever. But where's the uh, where's the upside here? Where's the plus?
3: Correct. Yeah. And I must say, since I haven't gotten any co- any close contact with him anymore, I feel much happier. I tell you. It's like a weight is off my shoulders. I'm like, I'm gone.
0: Right. But yeah, if, if, it's, since uh, you're first – like, sure about- I'm, I'm thinking mostly about your kids, guys. So your question was, how do we make sure that our kids – Grow up safe and secure from relationships with crazy people. Correct. And I think we know how you teach them that, which is don't have relationships with crazy people. If they get that model from their parents, they'll be bulletproof in the world.
3: Yeah, correct. Correct. Yes, I see what I I totally see what you're saying there. And I think we're on the way.
0: Good. If, I just want to be, be clear about it. You know? I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm just—I want to always inform people of the costs and benefits, right? And if if your concern is okay. that your kids may end up being susceptible to control and manipulation from crazy people, well, I think it's more the mirror you need to look at than the world or your children. Yes. All right.
2: Yeah. We've already mostly. been No, I get in that it. Direction. I get it. Here's where
0: you minimize, <laughs> and here's where you say it's mostly dealt with. I'm just telling you where, where things stand. All right. I'm going to move on for the next caller, but I certainly wish you the very best. And I really appreciate the fact that you both jumped in on the call. That was extraordinarily helpful. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Thanks guys. I appreciate it.
1: All right. Up next, we have Cody. Cody wrote in and said, Over the years, I have felt a deep sense of meaninglessness within myself, which has led to me adopting many different philosophies and lifestyle pursuits in order to attain a sense of self-worth. Recently, it's been harder for me to move past these feelings, and I can feel myself slipping into a deeply nihilistic worldview. How do I move past my childhood insecurities and my low self-worth and recognize that I can in fact provide meaning to a meaningless world? That's from Cody.
6: Cody, how you doing? Hey, Steph. Thanks so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure, my pleasure. When did you first start to feel that life was meaningless
6: um i think i've always had like a lingering feeling of helplessness um even when i was like a little kid uh i always had like a um a feeling like i i I, like i had this like sense of pain and i felt like um it wasn't like described to me why i was experiencing this so i was really confused so um my whole life I've been like into a lot of different things like the like joining the military for instance or different sports to try to like mask uh, my feelings and try to deal with it in pragmatic manners but
0: Well first I'd like um, to thank you for what is perhaps the most efficient listener response I've ever experienced in 11 years of talking in public. Cody, I love you. I, in fact, I'm going to marry you. I'm divorcing my wife and going to marry you because you have given me the most efficient feedback of any listener ever in the history of the show. And do you want to know what that is? What? I asked you how long you had experienced meaninglessness and you exactly gave me the word back, helplessness. You understand why that's so powerful and so clarifying?
6: Can you elaborate?
0: If you can act in a purposeful manner and gain traction in your life, you very rarely worry about meaning. And when we feel helplessness, then our will cannot affect positive change or any change in our situation or environment. And then we start to feel that life has no meaning because our will has no traction. As long as we can do something and work to achieve some particular goal or end, hopefully moral, but any kind of positive end, we don't really think about meaninglessness. Because the meaning is the fact that we can manifest our motivations in the real world through actions. But when we feel helpless, then we start to question life's meaning, because the meaning of life is expressed through decisive action in pursuit of a goal. And so when I asked you about meaninglessness, you immediately came back with the word helplessness, which is incredibly rapid, and I just really appreciate that. Oh,
6: thank you so much, Stefan. I really appreciate uh, your uh, description there.
0: And you also could not remember a time before this feeling of meaninglessness, which means to me that helplessness was most likely a characteristic of your childhood for as long as you can remember. Does that seem true or no?
6: Yeah, it's very true. All right.
0: Do you remember a time when you could affect positive change within your environment as a child?
6: Never. Right.
0: And why? Do, what were the circumstances that made that so impossible for you?
6: Um, my both of my parents had very bad um, lives. Uh, my mom was like a victim of sexual abuse as a child. Um, my father, his father abandoned him basically and made him fend for himself and his brothers. So they have this like very um like practical sense of viewing the world. And it's like so crushing that any like trauma or, or pain that I could have is like immediately dismissed because they didn't beat me with a belt every single day. Um, but You know, in a sense, that might have been, um, if they had done that, it might have been at least easier to process than what I have to deal with now. Right.
0: So what, you you mentioned a little bit about this, Cody, but what worldview did they develop as a result of the childhood or childhoods that they
6: had? You work hard, um, you keep your head down and uh, you grind it out and you, um, you never open up about your uh, emotions and whenever someone has a problem um with the world or with institutions um it's simply an individual uh issue it's not an issue of like a an institutional um dysfunction
0: right and did that mean I'm trying to sort of figure out how that meant with regards to, did, that, did that relate to schoolwork for you or, or being in school or conflicts with teachers?
6: Yeah. So, um, when I was in school, like up until like eighth grade, I was in like in an area that was like totally different than what I like, my, what my demographic is. I was in like a, a low income black inner city area and I'm a, a white person. So it was like very like racial and, and, um, I felt like always like alone and and I was picked on as a kid and uh, my teachers, like even if they were white teachers, they would like treat me badly, poorly for some reason. And it just felt like I was being uh, like unfairly targeted. And so they would like sit me like alone in front of the class in one desk and like make an example out of me and uh, like try to humiliate me in class.
0: Were you picked on in a racist manner by the black kids?
6: Yeah. And How so was, what would
0: they, what would they do?
6: Um, uh, they'd call me, you know, racist names and, uh, like what they would, you know, the, the usual honky cracker, you know, those sort of deals. Right. But, um, and, uh, you know, they would physically attack me because I'm white. And, uh, so yeah, that, that didn't lead to a very good, uh, childhood experience. And of course, when I came home, it was a completely dysfunctional mess. My mom is like, she, like the other caller listen, uh, uh, mentioned, uh, narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah, she's definitely that. Like, I mean, everything is, is, is probably my fault or my dad's fault. And I have no respect for my dad whatsoever. Um, he just. Over the over the years, stuff I've learned about him has just solidified that even more, and um, they're completely dysfunctional people, and, and um, they never gave me answers or even asked me um, what's wrong, and that's a problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that you probably had thought at some point of talking about the racist attacks upon you, the lack of support from your teachers – but I suppose that the idea or the belief within you, which probably was perfectly justified, was that they wouldn't do anything to help. Yeah. Yeah, that's what they call white privilege, right?
6: <laughs> yeah, it's funny how it works.
0: And what happened with the molestation or rape that you experienced as a child?
6: Uh, When I was like... um. Five or six years old, I uh, I was uh, molested by a teenage girl. And what happened? Um, sorry, I never have like spoken about this, so it's kind of difficult to recall. But It's not your I, shame I, at
0: all, man. I mean, you were you were preyed upon by a teenage girl and you were what, it five or six years old. It's not your shame, damn it.
6: Basically, uh, she just like forced me to touch her in different places and she reciprocated on me. And, um, it was, it's in the back of my head all the time. And what do you mean? I just feel like I can't get past it. Like, I feel like, um, people are going to find out and they're going to judge me for it. Judge you how? See me as like weak or. Or or worse yet, lucky, right?
0: Yeah. And how did the, was this a friend of the family? Was this a babysitter? I mean, the, the stories I've heard, let me tell you, man, you are not alone in this, Cody. You are not alone in this. I have heard the most appalling stories from men who as boys were preyed upon by babysitters or older women uh, and uh you are not alone in this at all.
6: Yeah, it was um uh, it was a, a half sister.
0: Right. Oh my god, so she's like in the house. Yep. And how did she initiate this? It's always a huge risk, right? I mean, for somebody to start preying upon a child in this manner, because you know, you can go to the parents, you can go to the Teachers, you can go to the priest, the police, who knows, right? Although that's a bit, bit of a big thing to ask from a five or six-year-old. But how did this uh, How did this begin?
6: So the memory is a bit foggy, but certain details stick out. Um, like it initially, like she was like showing me like how she was changing clothes and, and stuff like that. And that's where it started basically.
0: Oh, she would have you in the room while she was changing her clothes?
6: Yeah. And did she
0: invite you or threaten you to touch her first, or did she touch you first?
6: Uh, I I can't honestly remember.
0: And was it um, vaginal or, or anal or somewhere else where she put your hands?
6: Yeah, my... Uh, There wasn't any, like, penetration or anything. It was just my hands were vaginal, like, breasts, things of that nature.
0: And then she would touch your penis, too. Is that right? Yeah. Good Lord. How monstrous. And how long did this go on for? Not necessarily each individual incident, but the stretch of time.
6: Um. It's really hard to, to remember certain details about this, but it may, it, w- it might have been like two times or something like that. It was, it wasn't like over a long period of time. Because, um, she actually, uh, had problems with my parents as well. Um, her stepfather, which is my father, uh, they would argue all the time. They'd get like violent and, um, you know, screaming. Uh, so basically she was like in and out of the house. And at that point she moved out and like, you know, I didn't really talk to her until like, I don't know, 10 years later or something like that.
0: Oh, you didn't have any contact with her then till you were in your mid teens?
6: Yeah, early, early teens. Yeah.
0: Early teens. And what, uh, did you ever talk with her about this?
6: No, never. Right. And it's, uh, I, would like it's like i i interact with her and um it's like she thinks that i don't remember or something but i do and uh obviously i don't interact with her a lot i i, I make it so i i don't interact with her as, as much as possible um Does but she have children uh she will soon holy she's good, gonna man. yeah she's gonna have um She's planning on having a kid uh, soon.
0: Hopefully she doesn't work with children. Please tell me she doesn't work with children, Cody. (laughs) No, she doesn't. So you said it's always in the back of your mind. So what is it that you are concerned about with this in terms of keeping the secret? Why? Or, or, Or what is the fear if people know?
6: that I won't be normal, that I'm, I'm going to be like damaged for the rest of my life, and that I'll never find any sort of catharsis from this.
0: Which is not so much guilt or shame, it's hatred and fear of the people around you, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, this is one thing that people have a tough time understanding, that if you feel shame about being victimized as a child – If you feel that somehow you are damaged goods for being victimized as a child, it's not a judgment so much of yourself. It's not even so much a judgment of the person who abused you. It's a judgment of everybody else around you. Because obviously, Cody, every sane and decent human being on the planet would look at you and say, you were a five-year-old boy. You were a six-year-old boy. In a chaotic and violent household, you said that there was violence between your half-sister and your father, right? Yeah. So what the hell were you supposed to do? There's nobody you could go to for help? You submitted to this because maybe, and it seems quite likely, that by the time she participated in this or initiated this molestation, that you had already seen her be violent in your household, right? Yeah. So once you've already seen a person who is two to three times your size already be violent with someone even bigger than her which is your father how on earth are you supposed to say no
6: you can't
0: you can't you can't you can't this is a form of sexual assault from a highly dangerous violent person and you have no safety no support no comfort so right I think what that kind of shame or fear, Cody says, is that you really need to rewrite your social circle to the point where you will have people around you who will react with the appropriate levels of basic human sympathy and decency to your reports of being terrified and molested. Yeah. But you don't have that, right?
6: No. um, I'm... I am um, trying my hardest to move out and get a room now so I can be completely self-sufficient and eliminate my relationship with my parents, or at least make it so I can live life with without walking on eggshells all the time.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, there are some things that are internal, and there are other things which are existential, and there are other things which are just relational. So what I mean by that is that, you know, maybe if you had opportunity for courage, but you were behaving in a morally cowardly manner, that you might have some internal commitment to courage you'd need to make to overcome a sense of helplessness or meaninglessness. There may be things which are existential insofar as you could be somebody saying, well, you know, Europe is in great deal of danger from the migrant crisis. I have to find a way to fix Europe. (laughs) You know, and that's existential insofar as, yeah, okay, I can understand how you might end up feeling just a little helpless about that. That's finding out what you can and cannot affect and recognizing the power of acting in a way that you have authority over rather than being stressed and frustrated about things you don't have any direct control over. I mean, the war, you know, the you see in the mainstream media that they're complaining that there's not enough money for homelessness, there's not enough money for shelters, there's not enough money for this and repairing the roads, and there's not enough money for... It's like, but this is the mainstream media who shielded for and promoted and helped sell, if not directly sold, a war or two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq that have cost over $7 trillion just up to now, it's going to be probably more expensive, well, it will be more expensive as time goes forward. And there's no particular end in sight for the one in Afghanistan is now the longest. 17 years now, the longest US war in history. And that's frustrating as hell, but it's not like you and I can have any direct control over the editorial policies of major mainstream media news outlets. So as far as Things that are personal and things that are existential, but this one appears to be social in that it's the people around you who are unreachable by reason, unreachable by compassion, which makes you helpless in the relationship, yeah. right? I mean, if exactly. you were if you were to go to your family, sorry to interrupt, if you go to your family, Cody, and you were to say that this. Young woman, or this girl, this this girl in her mid-teens, sexually molested you. What would their reaction be? Do you think?
6: I can't even imagine. It would. It's terrifying to even think about. But I think um, they probably would be in disbelief, um, and they would probably strip themselves of any sort of responsibility from it.
0: So the first defense is it didn't happen. You're making it up. Or maybe you had a dream so vivid you thought it was real yeah. or whatever crazy making stuff they would say, right? Exactly. And if you stuck with that, then they would say, well, you never told us. We never knew. What could we do? Exactly. Right. And then if you said, well, we've got to really talk about this as a family because she's going to have a kid, right? Which means she's going to be around her own kids and a bunch of other kids. And if this hasn't been dealt with, she's going to hurt one of them too, right? Most likely. Then it would be, well, I'm sure she's better. Even if it was true, it's a long time ago in the past. Let's not rock the boat, blah, 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 right? Right. So you're helpless to achieve any empathy from others any 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 sympathy and certainly helpless to directly achieve any kind of breaking of the cycle if the cycle still exists with this girl and that is the price and i'm not saying that you're paying it willingly and it sounds like you're working hard to to get out of this environment But the price of having cold-hearted people around you is this sense of helplessness, which then becomes nihilistic. If your will cannot achieve virtue in your environment, your will gives up and says, virtue is meaningless. There's no such thing as the good. Everyone's shitty. Nothing gets better. And then, of course, you're going to feel nihilistic, right? But the nihilism comes from the foundational indifference and selfishness of those around you. Not out of anything philosophical, if that makes sense. Makes sense, yeah. And I just wanted to say, it was terrible what was done to you. It was wrong what was done to you. But it in no way, shape or form makes you damaged goods of any kind you were struggling to survive in a difficult and dangerous environment, a literally dangerous environment, not even psychologically dangerous, like physically dangerous with a crazy girl who fought your dad, physically, violently. So, you were like a kid in a neighborhood who got winged by a drive-by bullet, not somebody out there in a gun battle voluntarily. It does no harm to your honor and your integrity to have been victimized at the age of five or six, right? You understand that intellectually, right? It's just hard to really need that into your heart muscle, right?
6: Exactly, yeah. Right.
0: And I think that the fear is not of what the girl did to you, but of how it would land on the people around you. And that is very illuminating. But it does not make you damaged goods at all. Because it was something that it was done unto you. And it is, it is no shame to suffer evil, when, particularly when you have no choice in the matter. It is a shame to initiate evil. It is a shame to continue to suffer evil when you have a reasonable capacity to avoid it. Which you didn't have when you were five, right? No, No chance at all. What are you going to do? Pick up the phone, dial 911? Come on. Can you imagine what that would have done?
6: It would have been hell.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, who knows? Who knows what horrible things would have happened if you had broken wide a secret of molestation in your immediate family. But children will come for help if they believe any help is forthcoming. They will always come for help if they believe any help Help is forthcoming. Of course they will. And you didn't request help, because that would have made things worse, right? The shame is in those around you. The shame is in your father marrying and have a, having a child with a woman whose child grew up to be a teenager who molested a little boy. Your father brought. This mom and this girl into your life, right? Yeah. He was, she was his child by this new woman, right? Right. Before you came along. I was just, you know, eight or ten years older, right? So he had a marriage before, and then you came along with your mother. And then what what happened with your father's relationship with your mother?
6: Um, it, it's, it's really a tough situation. Um, my mom is, is like a wreck. And even to this day, she's like considering divorcing him at this point. And, um, and something i learned recently which completely put was the nail in the coffin for how i felt about my dad was um cuz my mom was feeling depressed and uh so was he and this was like 6 months ago he he he's uh suggested a murder suicide
0: your father suggested to your mother that They engage in a murder-suicide? Yeah. How the fuck did you find out about that, Cody?
6: My mom told me.
0: Your mother told you? Oh, my God. Well, Cody, I mean... Isn't it time to call the cops? I mean, he's threatening a murder-suicide. You are knowledgeable of criminal intent aren't you. I mean, I know it was, you said it was six months ago, right?
6: Yeah. You know, um,
0: isn't this a job for people with some kind of authority, you know, go, don't get me wrong. I'm no big fan of the state, but you're, you're a young man who has no particular authority in this area. Right. Right.
6: Um, I, I guess, I just want to think that you know my dad uh, he's always been like this type of person to just do something and then one time or like say something one time and then never follow through with it like he like lifts weights like once every 6 months or something and he acts like he's all motivated or something but I just don't really lend any um any value to what he says so I don't really believe that he is I don't really believe that he has the cojones to do it. You know what I mean?
0: Well, it's a hell of a risk to take, man. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, <sighs> if, and, and the fact that your mom would, would say, okay, t- tell me under, under, in what context or circumstances does this conversation with your mom happen? How, how, how did this come about?
6: Uh, I was um, in the car with her and she was talking about how uh, she had like a lot on her mind or something and then um, she brought up like that I never have to worry about her doing something to hurt herself or anything like that and uh, she said that her whole mind has changed on on suicide and death recently and which piqued my interest obviously so I said what do you mean and then that's when she explained that story to me
0: how did she put it? What did she say?
6: She said that, uh, she was with my father and they were like sitting down and he just mentioned, she was like mentioning that she was like in a lot of pain cause she has a, a medical condition. All also she's got like a lot of psychological trauma. So she's in all sorts of pain. And then he says, well, as such, like as a matter of fact, let's just commit a murder homicide or murder, suicide. And then she said that she replied, like, angrily, which is to be expected. Uh, And she yelled at him, basically.
0: And what was with your father that this seemed like a course of action that could be open to him?
6: I don't know. My dad is like, my dad is a mess. He doesn't he doesn't open up about what he, what he feels. And he's like, he's always at work and he's always been my entire life. So it's like, he's been kind of absent and, um, he's like a workaholic. I've heard you talk about this in a couple of different shows, but fathers who are workaholics to escape the, um, the mother that they chose for their children. It's a very selfish act. And that's him. Wow.
0: Wow. That's, that's quite something, Cody. Uh, that is a terrifying thing to be around and and has that kind of i know that you said the molestation is sticking with you but did this kind of come and go or does that circle you
6: mentally uh the fact that he wants to do a murder
0: or that he talked about it yeah yeah um assuming that what your mom says is true
6: right uh yeah this is um it to me it It feels like it's a reflection upon me. Like, wow, this is my father and this is, this is my DNA. This is what I'm from. Look at, look at the disgusting things that I'm capable of doing. And, um, it's, I kind of like internalize it and get angry at myself or look down upon myself or my own potential.
0: Well, it would be a cruel universe if we inherited directly the sins of our parents right are you ready for a truth bomb or two my friend absolutely are you uh, are you assuming crash position hey? <laughs> all right nihilism is very convenient for dangerous people your nihilism is very convenient for dangerous people in other words We naturally flourish towards having values. We naturally flourish towards achievement and and we naturally gravitate towards action and in general positive action. But what happens to your relationship with your parents if you adopt or accept meaning and virtue and value in your life? What happens to your relationship with them?
6: It gives them personal responsibility and it, it shows that they've done something wrong.
0: And what does that do to your relationship with them?
6: It probably would destroy it.
0: Right. So if you have nihilistic people around you, if you have depressed and anxious, manipulative, controlling, selfish, narcissistic, bullying, whatever, right? Then your relationship, for want of a better word, with them can only survive as long as you are nihilistic too, right? So nihilism is a form of, Stockholm Syndrome bonding to dysfunctional parents. Because it's the only way the relationship, such as it is, can sustain itself, right? And so if you, I mean, you say, well, I find myself slipping into a deeply nihilistic worldview. No, Cody, you are pushed into a deeply nihilistic worldview. You are required to possess a deeply nihilistic worldview A deeply nihilistic worldview is the requirement for being in a relationship with your family of origin. Because the moment you get meaning, you get out, right? Because what on earth would you have in common with people like this if you accept meaning and courage and virtue and all those other good things in life, right? You're right. You know, once the murder-suicide thing has happened in a relationship, I don't really know where you go from there. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Now you've pulled the let's eat a grenade and hug together. I mean, now you've pulled that. Where do we go from here?
7: To the movies?
0: I don't think so. Once murder-suicide is floating through the air, I just don't know what you can really build on. Hey, hope they haven't killed, murdered, suicided each other today. Yay. Right? The
7: fuck are you supposed to do with that?
0: I mean, that's a job for a team of professionals, a taser, (laughs) and I don't know, something that frightens a cat like a watermelon or a cucumber for reasons I can't fathom. Like, what are you supposed to do with that? How are you supposed to relate to that or interact with that? How are you supposed to bond with that? How are you supposed to find joy in your life surrounded by that? Oh, I got another one, Cody. How are you supposed to invite the woman of your dreams in to that? Hey, let's go visit my parents. Let me go in first. Just see what they're up to. See where they are. Hopefully they're sitting at the table, not spattered on the wall.
6: (laughs) Yeah. It's, um, you know. Come over for a party, Cody. We're going to have a blowout. Hey, wait, wait, wait. What do you mean by that? Exactly. Jesus. Yeah. It's funny how you said, um, what's that going to mean for like meeting a woman? and uh, so i've always had like this throughout my life like this hesitance to form relationships with other people
0: of course you do of course you do because she's at some point gonna say hey cody love to meet your parents no you just think that honey you really don't what are you supposed to do with that What are you supposed I can only to do? internalize can, it. You, yeah. Well, I mean, to stay there, you have to believe that's all you're worth, right? Yeah. That's the price. And and I'm I, Cody. I can't even tell you how desperately sorry I am that that is the price for this relationship or these relationships. Nobody should have to pay that price. Nobody should be asked to pay that price. And I'm sorry that your parents made the kind of decisions that they made that have ended up with them in this situation. I really am, and I'm sorry about my own mom and the decisions that she made, but, you know, she chose to smoke doesn't mean I have to give up a lung, if that makes sense. And then, of course, there's this stickiness, which is, well, let's say that I bail on this relationship. Will that be what pushes them over the edge?
6: It's I've like this bear trap so of
0: dysfunction. Times. you got to chew your own leg off to get out if you even think about it. Sorry, you said?
6: Uh, yeah, sorry to interrupt. I, I thought about that so many times. Like, what happens when I leave? Are they going to kill themselves?
0: Well, I don't know how many of my short, how many of my thoughts I should share on this particular matter because it's your family. But it certainly is a consideration, for sure. Because that's a that's a heavy burden to to live with. Now, from an abstract philosophical standpoint, which may have some value and may not, if someone says, you know, if you have a girlfriend who says, if you leave me, I'll kill myself. what are you supposed to do? Stay? You know what I mean? Like, what are you supposed to do? It's her damn choice. If she I mean, I don't like suicide. I think that most suicides are horribly cowardly and vicious. Because if you have decided that your life is not worth living anymore, do everyone a fucking favor around you and make it look like an accident when you check out. Don't leave people... Like, don't fucking hang yourself. Like, I mean, I've had callers who call and they found their blood spattered parent on the ground with a gun by them. Like, don't, don't do it where your kids are gonna find you and fuck them up. That's like, let's just bring you back to life to fucking kill you again, cause that's just a horrible thing to do. And to, to make the exit of your life a bully stain on the hearts, minds, and conscience of everyone around you is such a vicious thing to do. I say good riddance. Now, Again, that's a very abstract perspective and it's not my family. So, you know, please understand that. I'm not saying you can just imagine. But yeah, you got some girlfriend. Oh, if you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. It's like, oh, well, I guess we'll just stay and have a whole bunch of kids then because I love to be bullied by the threats of demise. But the reason that people want to kill themselves in those situations is because they're the kind of people who would make those kinds of threats in the first place. It's not you who would end up with them dying. It's the fact that your mom would tell you that she had a potential murder-suicide pact with your father. You don't tell your children that when they're... You don't tell your children that ever. Ever. Part of me is like, meh.
4: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I could understand that. You know, just from the outside, you know. You reap what you sow. It's
1: you know. Bring a pedophile
0: around your little boy. Raise a pedophile girl around your little boy. Yeah, you might not end up very happy now, mightn't you? people who raised a pedophile and exposed a little boy to that pedophile well they've killed themselves you know again I I hate to be this blunt but I'm just going to be as ruthlessly honest with you as I can be it's a shame
6: (laughs) yeah at least there would be a finality to it you know i wouldn't have to worry about is it gonna happen today or i wouldn't have to worry about it anymore it would just be over and i could move past it i mean i'm not wishing this of course no, of course but, of course but i'm just saying you know like it's there would probably be um like a a relief to some extent
0: and 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 how can you like once – and again, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more. I'm just hammering these two points because they're the most vivid. Like once you've raised a pedophile and had your son molested by him – her, sorry, by her. And then once you've had this kind of life and then once you've verbalized a murder-suicide pact and once you've informed your son of this murder-suicide pact. How can you fix your life? How can you get better? How can you flourish?
6: I don't think they ever will.
0: No, I mean, I... You know, there's stuff, there's stuff you can come back from. And I think there's stuff you can't come back from. You know, there are venal sins and there are mortal sins. And I think it's Cody survival time myself. Yeah. Can I get your perspective? Sorry, go ahead.
6: Yeah, I just, um, in case we don't get to this, I just wanted to get a quick perspective on something so I can see if, you know, what other people think about how I'm finding purpose in my life and if it's a virtuous path. So, yeah, um, please go ahead. I have like this, um, of course it's, you know, it's no surprise. I have like this insatiable desire to be appreciated. And, um, you know, I see what people like you do and, and other political thinkers like Cody Wilson, for instance, created the 3d printed gun. But, um, I, I have like an insatiable desire to bring upon um, good in the world and um to get like a almost like a, a martyrdom from it you know and um i'm wondering if how you how you feel about that
0: well i like the first part until you got to the martyrdom bit tell me a little <laughs> bit more about that because that was a you know that old internet phrase well that escalated quickly I want to do good in the world. Yeah, like that. Oh, I'd really like to be appreciated for bringing more virtue to the world. Excellent. Martyrdom. Wait. Hang on. (laughs) Let's just back up a little and go over that once or twice more if you'd be so kind.
6: Yeah. So um, not necessarily like a literal sense, but more like um, figuratively. I, I like every day, often I fantasize about like being in like a very large position of power having like a large sphere of influence with a lot of people and destroying it for like a, a political message, like, um, you know, writings or podcasts, for instance, and what you do.
0: But, but what do you mean by dist- you mean like turning it off kind of thing, like building an audience and then turning it off?
6: Uh, no, I mean like, um, getting a, a platform in a, an area that's not known to be political, like an entertainment area and then um, destroying my own career for like a, a message or a political philosophy and-
0: ah I see so professional suicide <laughs> Yeah right right sort of a murder suicide of your career right yeah, yeah no this is this is the blaze of glory fantasy which people have and I you know I, I fully understand it. So this is the blaze of <clears throat> glory theory that if you do something that is so extravagant and so destructive that somehow it's going to wake a bunch of people up to your cause? Yeah. And you will be remembered. Now, I understand you're not talking about a physical death and so on, but here's the problem with that, Cody. I mean, there's lots of problems with it, but the big one is that whatever you do that is extravagant you don't get to control the narrative, right? Like, let me give you an example. So, there was a guy some years ago who was so broken, frustrated, tortured, and tormented by his experience with the family court that he set himself on fire in front of the family court, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you've probably seen the picture. I don't know if it's still common anymore. There was some Tibetan monk who had put himself on fire to protest something. And he had the serene look while he was being burned up. And this was publicized. He was a Tibetan monk. So there was great sympathy for his cause and all that kind of stuff. But most people have never heard of the guy who set himself on fire in front of the court steps to protest or to at least attempt to gain recognition for how terrible things were for men in the family court system. But nobody will report on it. And if they do report on it, they'll say, well, this is exactly why this guy didn't get his custody because look how crazy he is. Look how. Like they either don't talk about it or they twist it to the point where his gesture is derided as the actions of a crazy person and it actually discredits the movement that he perhaps was trying to help. Yeah. And so. What's much more difficult than the extravagant gesture is the patient brick by brick, brick building of a case, right? Right. And so you when see- you when you recognize the power that the narrative has, I mean, just just look at someone like Nelson Mandela, who was married to a thuggish woman whose gang killed people and tortured people, who himself was a communist terrorist who, you know, like, I mean, but Nelson Mandela received every award known to mankind and has adulatory movies with Matt Damon in them. That's not too surprising, I suppose. But uh, Che Guevara, right, uh, who gunned down children and was a rapist and like just a horrifying human being uh, all around. Well, he's lauded. I mean, Karl Marx uh, is is lauded. And The narrative controls everything, which is so frustrating for those of us who try to deal with reason and evidence. And opposing the narrative is a big challenge because peoples the narrative invades people and becomes their personality. The narrative hollows you out and then becomes you. And then to destroy the narrative feels like to destroy the identity, to destroy the self. And so the extravagant gesture and the idea that the extravagant gesture can somehow transfer ideas and arguments to others, I think fundamentally misunderstands how people end up where they are in their minds and in their hearts. So for instance, the mainstream media is always very hostile to the idea of privatizing the education of children, even for vouchers. Well, why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons, of course, some of them having to do with unions funneling money to the Democrats, although that's been diminished this last week with the Supreme Court ruling. But even more fundamentally, the mainstream media has calibrated itself to supply information to people who've been utterly propagandized by government schools. And I'm not talking universities, just your basic old, you know, kindergarten through high school. And so the mainstream media has completely aligned themselves and everyone who's there has calibrated themselves to deliver propaganda to people pre-configured with propaganda by government schools. Now, if school was privatized, then their audience would begin to drop off virtually immediately because people would then stop coming out pre-configured with propaganda, which could then be reinforced by the mainstream media. So it's a foundational business decision for them. Because that's their job is delivering bullshit, lies, slander, praise for idiots and evildoers and propaganda. And the reason why they can do that is because people have been primed to accept that steady diet of mental junk food by all the junk they're force fed in government schools. So if schools get privatized, the market for bullshit exploited by the mainstream media will evaporate uh, over time. And so there's a slow and patient step-by-step building of the case and building of the argument and building of a narrative based on facts and evidence rather than greed, exploitation, and fantasy. And the idea that we can have just one big grand action that is going to somehow wake people up is very tempting. But generally, these big actions tend to put things more tend to put people more to sleep than wake them up because people get a hold of whatever it is that you're doing and spin it in a way that is unrecognizable to your original intent if that makes sense
6: yeah that makes sense um
0: yeah that's a very good point there's this fantasy that people have about therapy or self-knowledge or personal growth it comes out of endless numbers of movies that depict things this way, that there's somebody who's upset about something, but they're closed off from it. And then they have this big emotional outburst. They cry, they wail, they throw themselves on the ground in Oscar-worthy scenes of scenery chewing, and then they're better, right? This is the um, goodwill hunting. Oh, he's closed off, and he's distant, and he's defensive, and, but then he cries about the abuse, and then he's all better right and and there's this idea that there's one just big emotional shit that you take and then (laughs) your emotional constipation is done and you're all better and it's a way of blaming the victim for remaining repressed saying well if you only got in touch with your emotions and released all those emotions you'd feel better and everything would be fine but the reality is the world has not been getting better as this myth has been around and the myth is fundamentally it fundamentally serves abusers because the whole point of trauma is to say you're in a dangerous situation and until you're in a safe situation, you're going to continue to feel traumatized. And being in a safe situation doesn't mean crying and weeping on the floor of a therapist's office. A safe situation means get the abusers out of your life so that you're actually safe the point is not to adapt to living with a tiger. The point is to either get you or the tiger to move out, right? I mean, so I've been so scared about living with this tiger. Wow, wow, wow. Cry, cry, cry. Oh, it's been so difficult, so stressful. Now I'm going to go back and live with the tiger. It's like, no, no, that's that's not what the emotions are for. They're not just bottled up and you need to just throw them out somewhere. You need to act to make yourself safe to prevent recurrence of the stimuli that's producing the negative emotions to begin with, right? I mean, that's got your hand in a fire. You don't just sit there and say, wow, that's really painful. It's, uh, <laughs> And then you leave your hand in the fire. Your tears ain't going to put out the fire, right? What you want to do is say, holy shit, my hand's in a fire. I should take that out because it's really painful and I'm going to go see a doctor to get it fixed, right? And the idea that you would look at a grand sacrifice as the path forward, I think is part of the nihilism. First of all, you need to get safe and you need to get happy and you need to find meaning in your life before you start to try and fix the world. In my humble opinion, I mean, you had a very difficult childhood. You have a very difficult young adulthood. You have some of the most dysfunctional people I've heard of in your life. And I've heard of a few, right? And I just really wanted to extend my extraordinary sympathies for the challenges that you are facing from this monstrous, hellish family of origin and the price for survival should not be nihilism because that's barely surviving and to go from meaninglessness to extravagance in the pursuit of virtue is not finding that sweet aristotelian mean like you don't want to be so helpless that you don't get anything done you don't want to be so grandiose that you do these extravagant gestures that can be twisted what you want to do is just like you you, you, build, you want to build a house, right? You don't just say, well, I can't ever build a house. It's never going to work and just sit around getting rained on, right? That's that's pretty tragic. At the same time, you don't want to just say, well, I'm going to get a giant cannon, and fill it with bricks and fire it at a foundation, right? I mean, you get, it's just a slow, patient process of building up these bricks. I mean, you're young, you're smart, you're verbal, you're interested in self-knowledge, you have moral courage you can have a great place in the world. But I would think less about the world and more about getting to a safe place and starting to build my capacity for joy and reorient my alignment from attempting to manage craziness to attempting to build the foundations of sanity and happiness.
1: You had to sacrifice
0: your happiness to survive with your parents, I wouldn't say that it's now a good idea to sacrifice your career in an attempt to wake up the world. How about not sacrificing at all and, and building something
6: lasting? Yeah. Do you, th- do you still think I should um push to create like a large uh, audience of, of, of people who are supporting me? Like, do you think I should still go into a career in, like, entertainment and um, make a stand but not self-sabotage and simply, like, you know, write a book or something like that?
0: Well, I would say, Cody, that you need to figure out what you can do that's good for you because you had a larger purpose called survival. And now you want a larger purpose called saving the world or making everything better. And don't get me wrong. I'm not going to tell you not to do that at some point in your life. But I wouldn't go straight from survival to saving the world. Because there's not a lot of room for just you, Cody, in in either of those scenarios, if that makes sense. And I think it would be quite self-destructive to focus directly on going from Appeasing the murder-suicide craziness of your parents to trying to manage a large audience in highly contentious areas. I mean, you are a young man; you've got some time, and I would do it. I I would pursue what would make you the happiest. That is, you know, rational and and moral. I would pursue that which makes you the happiest for a while, because you're going to need a strong foundation if you're going to start wading into controversial public topics
6: yeah i i agree
0: and also be enough of a cody person to get good friendships a girlfriend and the kind of support structure that you're going to need if you're going to wander into contentious areas but if you go straight from this to contentious areas without the support system I think that would be not positive in the long run and probably not sustainable.
6: Yeah, build a structure that can handle the the stresses that will come.
0: Yeah, just be yourself, be yourself, be yourself, which you haven't had much of a chance to do, right? I mean, you mentioned the army, you've got a difficult family and a very difficult family, And the nihilistic is the opposite of identity, right? Nihilism is saying nothing has any value, which is the opposite of identity. And I would learn to love the truth and love virtue, which means that you, Cody, have to be there to appreciate truth and goodness and virtue before attempting to expand it to the world as a whole. You can't push out from a vacuum, I think. And the vacuum is not the vacuum of your identity. It's the vacuum of uh, meaning, this this temptation uh, into this nihilistic worldview. But I I think I I would take some time to be inconsequential in the world and happy in your own skin.
6: Yeah, I think that would probably be uh, good for me.
0: And if you could get to a good therapist, I mean, I think that would be. And and if you can't afford it, let let, let me know. We'll we'll send you some money to uh, to do it. But uh, you know, you you deserve some someone to to listen and really care, because man, you've been through a lot and a half. Thank you. Will you let us know if we can help you? Yeah. How are you feeling Thank now? You so, okay. It's it's hard to tell because you know you're a little <laughs> little hard to read when it's, it's the yeah.
6: That's like a uh, I don't know defense mechanism, I guess. No, I get it. I just
0: I I know that it's there, and I understand why. I just wanted to. I didn't want to pretend that it wasn't, and I just wanted to know where how you feel or, or where you are in the conversation.
6: I feel. Um, Relief, actually.
0: Um, <laughs> Good. I'm not conscripting <laughs> you, right? I'm not drafting <laughs> you into the army of goodness.
6: Yeah, yeah. I feel uh, relief and like, um you know, it's it's ironic that my whole life, people that I don't respect have not given me any appreciation or like recognize my value, but you, I respect tremendously, and, and you've had such kind words to say. So I'm very appreciative of that. I really. Really do appreciate it.
0: You are a great guy. And to have gone through what you've gone through and to retain your thirst for virtue is an act of will that is astonishingly powerful, astonishingly strong, and uh, something to be very, very proud of. Thank you. All right. Will you stay in touch? Absolutely. All right. I appreciate the call. Thank you so much.
6: Thank you.
1: All right, up next, we have Tony. Tony wrote in and said, I've heard you advocate for a society in which coercive force is universally forbidden and people orient themselves using free market principles. When presented with this idea, much like everyone else, my tendency is to try and make assumptions about what that would mean and how it would play out. But I hear you say that we can't do that because nobody knows. And what's more, you don't care. As long as everyone is acting voluntarily, then whatever happens is essentially right. In principle, I don't disagree with that but I believe that we both know intuitively and based on history at least how the first moments will play out. We know this from witnessing revolutions throughout history, and more anecdotally, from watching TV shows like Survivor and The Walking Dead. One, the majority of the people will look for a leader to follow. Two, a small minority will vie for power and look for a group to lead. Three, the remainder will go find a patch of land and insist that everyone else leave them alone. So my question is, if we know, based on my assertion, that most people will try to form a leadership either by leading or by following, isn't it safe to assume that a government of some kind will naturally emerge? How do you avoid the paradoxical notion that coercion would be required to get a group of people to adhere to the idea of a society free of coercion? That's from Tony.
0: Oh, hey, Tony. How are you doing?
1: Good, stuff.. All Thank
0: right. You. I'm going to try to be patient because I've answered this about six million different ways from Sunday. So let me just ask you how long you've been listening to this show.
7: Uh, not very long at all, actually. Well, um, six months. Right. Um, I've, have you? Read, I, I've, I've looked. I've hang, looked on, for the hang on, from, hang, on from you. hang on, hang on. Have you read or
0: listened to the free books, Everyday Anarchy and Practical Anarchy, that I've written?
7: I have not, and I, since since I wrote this, since I sent in this email, I had looked for answers from you and from others, and I haven't kind of things specific, right? I apologize if you haven't answered the question. I, sh- I sh- should find it. But I thought it'd be fun to talk about it
0: anyways. Did you know that I have these books?
7: Um, no.
0: <laughs> oh, you didn't? Okay, so you've not really been to the website no. and looked. Because, you know, if somebody advocates a particular thing, just, you know, word to the wise, useful tip. If somebody advocates for a particular thing, the first thing that you can do is say, hey, do they have a book out about it? Because, you know, that could answer a whole bunch of questions. Yeah. I don't mind asking, answering this question live. So, uh, but I'm just That's saying for, sure. for, for other people, I, I don't want to, you know, I wrote these books and particularly made them free so that I wouldn't have to do this, but I haven't done this for a while. So it's fine. I just want to sort of point out that people can get these free books. You can read them online. You can read them, uh, in, in Kindle format. You can buy them from Amazon or you can, uh, listen to them in MP3 format or, or whatever. So I just sort of wanted to, to point that out. So why do you think the majority of people look for a leader? To follow do you think that's human nature or do you think that's to some degree how we're raised right?
7: well let me say first of all that you know I'm not an anthropologist i've never studied these things that's my assumption my assumption is that and and you know i've spent 20 years in in, in business and and i see people's behavior at least in the business world when People look for leaders. Um, they 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 don't know what to do. They don't want to have to think about what to do. They, they want to be um, and most people, not not all people, uh, maybe not even most, but but, um, but they want to be told what to do.
0: Okay, I'll ask the question again because I don't think you quite got it. Why do you think people look for leaders? Do you think it's human nature, or do you think okay. it's how we're raised?
7: Um, I would. Again, based on assumption, I I would assume um, that there's probably some human nature to it, but uh, you can't avoid the fact that that that's how we're raised. Yeah, I
0: mean, we're raised in families where corporal punishment, hitting children is still the norm. We're raised in families where a lot of superstitious nonsense is put into children. We're raised in schools where we have to raise our hand to go to the bathroom and line up everywhere and and have no say over the content or form of how we're instructed, and neither do the parents. So, you know, how much free will, how much choice, how much self-actualization is encouraged in the hearts, minds, and souls of the young? Well, precious little. So it's sort of like saying, well, you know, here's the problem, man. Tony, you just weren't raised in Japan and and you don't you don't speak Japanese. So how on earth are we going to run a society where people speak Japanese? It's like, well, I don't know, maybe we could teach Japanese to kids and, you know, or maybe you could grow up in Japan or in a different environment, you'd have a different set of mental constructs and and approaches. So What I have talked about is that we start raising children peacefully, we stop hitting them, we stop yelling at them, we stop bullying them, and we actually talk about sensible things with them in a reasonable tone. And then children will, of all levels of intelligence, learn to think for themselves, learn how to analyze data themselves, learn how to come to their own conclusions, and not be so reliant upon authority. Because the question is, why do people need authority? Because they have to get things done and they can't think for themselves. So they turn to other people for how to get things done in larger social in a larger social context. Whereas if they can think for themselves and understand basic principles, then they will need leaders less, right? There's a reason why a hierarchical society like the one we live in with a coercive agent known as a state in the middle of it, there's a reason why a hierarchical society bullies children so much because bullied children look for protection. They look for guidance. They look for leadership in very foundational ways because their own sense of identity and and certainty has not been allowed to develop. In fact, it's punished. The, The kids are punished if they think for themselves. So that's one thing. If we raise children peacefully and rationally, then they will not have that same hunger for leadership. Now, those who still do have a hunger for leadership can get their leadership in whatever form they want, except the state, right? Because the state is a violation of the non-aggression principle. The government exists only because it can initiate the use of force against its citizens in the form of taxation and, and laws and so on. And so if you do still have a desperate thirst for leadership in a free society, you can join some group and Do what the leader tells you to, right? There's nothing wrong with that. There's lots of groups that are out there, some of them more benevolent, like many of the Christian churches, some of them less benevolent in a variety of other groups that tell you what to do. But uh, you can join a bowling league and have the bowling captain tell you what to do, and you can get your thrill of obedience from that standpoint, right? You can join uh, whatever group you want and surrender or sublimate some of your own will to the will of that leader. As long as nobody's initiating force or fraud against each other, that's perfectly fine. It's. I don't have a problem with private individuals giving up their willpower to a charismatic leader. I just don't want that leader to be armed with the power of the state in order to impose that group's wishes upon me. So, so how
7: do you dis- go ahead? I'm sorry please. if I can ask. How, how do you distinguish between what you call the, the state, what we know as the state, because we're born into this condition, right? The particular um, Western society. We're born into this condition where we live under the state. Um as opposed to let's just think of um sicily um you know before the turn of the century uh, in the of the 1800s um, was essentially abandoned by government um and left to pen for, for, for themselves and what rose up out of that was you know uh, at, at least not what we know as the mafia but but the mafia rose up out of that. A, a, a government rose up out of that. Um, right? Are you saying that Sicily,
0: Sicily, had no government in the 1800s? Uh, no, I'm saying that
7: they were abandoned by their government. The government basically didn't provide the needs. Didn't there was there, there was none of the services that that the government provided to the rest of the country w- wasn't provided. And well, hang fact, on, hang on, were, hang on.
0: So you're was, saying that? Hang on. You're saying that the mafia has something to do with the absent absence of government. Yes, I am. But then how that do you explain like do you, right. hang on, but hang on. Probably. So then how do you explain the basic historical reality that there was virtually no organized crime in America until the government forbade the sale of alcohol through prohibition?
7: Well, I want to make sure that, that I'm clear on terms here. When I say mafia, I don't mean the the New York mafia. I mean the original Italian mafia that came up in Sicily. Um, well, listen, dude. Dude, you you can't crime. you you
0: can't start an argument off by bringing really obscure historical examples, right? Because I don't know so what the was, hell happened in Sicily in the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck! I mean, how the hell am I supposed to know that stuff, right? That's I do true, know true, that true. I do I, know that, that there was virtually. Hang on, hang on. I do know that there was virtually no organized crime in America prior to Prohibition. That Prohibition drew the mafia and other elements of organized crime into America. In other words, because the government created an artificial shortage, in this case, in alcohol, the mafia could exploit it by supplying goods and services banned by the government. The same thing, of course, as you know, happens with the drug war. Because drugs have become illegal, the mafia and other elements of organized crime have uh, taken to the business of supplying it. The same thing happens in in gambling when the government bans it. The same thing happens with uh, prostitution and, and whorehouses, exotic dancing, whatever it is, right? So when the government places a ban upon unsavory but voluntary transactions that would not be wrong uh, to the point of of being coercively forbidden in a free society, well then the organized crime gains a toehold. Like why was there so little organized crime in the United States when cocaine and heroin and so on were perfectly legal? Well, when these things became illegal, well, the demand still exists and the supply is granted by, uh, or, or the supply is provided by, the um, the organized crime. So I'm not sure okay. how you're going to say, well, somehow the absence of government nope. provides the the demand for organized crime. When every example that I've ever seen is that it's the presence of government that
7: well, uh, creates to the conditions that
0: allows organized crime to become so wealthy. I
7: understand, and, and I'm not I'm not saying organized crime. Um, I'm saying. Um, what was known as um, the Mafia. And it wasn't organized crime. It it didn't originate as organized crime. It originated as people uh, in the community who rose up to be leaders of the community. What? Um, Wait. wait, Hang on. Fuck. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Are you trying to tell me that you're
0: going to use the phrase organized crime and say it has nothing to do with the Mafia? You can't just make up your own (laughs) own definitions, man. Well,
7: okay. Uh, Well, let me... let me take the word out then. I'm not talking about organized crime. I'm talking about um, organization of a community. Wait, are you withdrawing uh, the you mafia know. thing now? No, because it, it's, it's where okay, the Okay, so you're not is.
0: talking about organized crime, but you are talking
7: about the mafia. Come on, man. You can't just make up things like this. That's not fair. No, I'm not. I'm not. It, it, I, I just don't know another term to use because if you look at the origins of the Italian mafia, it, it, it actually wasn't organized crime it, it was oh so now i have trying. to know
0: not just the history of sicily when the government supposedly I, I pulled down but i also hang on i also need need to now know the 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 origins of the mafia according to anthropologists or social historians and that's how we're going to do the argument see here's no, the thing you have to argue based on principles there. because historical examples you either got to tell me ahead of time that this is what we're going to talk about, but bringing this shit up in the middle of a debate—it's kind of pointless, right? Because expecting me to study and get up to speed on this stuff in the moment is That's fair. ridiculous, I thought, right? I thought
7: it was was more well known. I apologize, but let, let Wait, me you, just,
0: you thought that the history of social organization in nineteenth-century Sicily was more well known, really?
7: I, yeah, come and crazy, um, and. and I'm not even all that knowledgeable about it. I, I just Okay, I, good. I, well, it.
0: let's not talk about things that I don't know about and you're not very knowledgeable about. How, how about we do okay. that? How about we deal with the fact that there was no organized crime to speak of in America in the 19th century when most things that now are the profits of organized crime well, were legal?
7: Okay. Your implication is that government is bad. And I, and as I said in my email, I agree with you. I, I, I think – it's it's not good. It's not the way we want to go. I'm trying to it's sort of as sort of a thought experiment to understand how we would get there. Not even not even necessarily how we would get there, but how would that arise? How, uh, uh, again, like a thought experiment w- where we say, okay, the the American Revolution was just one. Here we are. Let's do this the right way instead of the way that that it was done before. How how do you do that when you know if you have a group of people? Who decide that they want to follow a leader and choose to give up their freedoms to that leader in exchange for protection, or, or, or you know, whatever it is that, that they're seeking, you can Anarchy can't stop that without coercion. It's going. So, um, does, it, does it make sense what I'm saying?
0: So people might want to give up their freedoms in exchange for protection.
7: That that seems to be a natural tendency. Yeah. What's wrong with that? Well, because is that not what the state is?
0: No. I give up my freedom to spend a hundred bucks a month so that I can get life insurance, which gives me protection in the case that I die, or at least gives my family protection in the case that I die. I give up freedom to spend fifty bucks a month so that I get insurance for my house. So if it burns down I get a new house. I regularly I give I'm up freedom. Hang on, hang on. I give up, I regularly will give up my freedoms in return for security. It's just, it's voluntary. That's all.
7: That makes sense. And and, and it's it's based on capitalism. Why didn't that come out of, um, you know, the American Revolution? Why, Why didn't that naturally rise up as opposed to a republic? What do you
0: mean? Why did I, why was why was the American Revolution? Why did it not result in a stateless society?
7: Yeah, I guess this is maybe a good question. That, that, that I I, I, obviously there's not a single answer. I, but a question worth asking, I think. Why why did that not arise instead of a republic? Capitalism was. Well, that, that, was that's like saying.
0: But, but that's that's like saying. What, why did physicists in the 19th century not? talk about Einstein's theory of relativity. It's because the concept hadn't been invented yet. Oh,
7: uh, the the, lack con- of the a concept state of a state, a society,
0: and how a voluntary anarcho-capitalist society could self-organize hadn't existed. It's like asking, where was Marxism before Marx? It's like, well, the concept it's hadn't same- been invented yet. Why was there no communism before Marxism invented communism? Well, because there was no concept of how to organize this or disorganize society in that way. And to my knowledge, there was a guy named Lysander Spooner who wrote The Constitution of No Authority, who was himself uh, more of an anarchist. uh, But he was in the 19th century when the power of the federal government was already pretty well established, and they used it to destroy his free market alternative to the um, U.S. National Postal Service. But uh, no, I don't believe that there was any particularly strong theoretician, if any theoretician, of rational voluntarism or anarchism in the, like prior to the American Revolution. So they wouldn't have even had a conceptual reference point by which to imagine such a thing.
7: I mean, I think a stateless society existed before society ruled by a state existed. You mean tribalism? Something, something existed before a state existed, right?
0: Yeah. But it was still coercive authority. I mean, if you disobeyed the elders, they probably would have you killed or, or, Tortured or tormented or you know I mean or or ostracized or driven out or you know they're, they're, okay, so it's a small localized state, but it's still an oligarchical collectivist hierarchy that is enforced through violence. I mean we see this in primitive tribes all the time okay,
7: so it's not based on on, on the principle uh, of non-aggressions
0: it's certainly yeah it's not based, it's not based upon a right. universal understanding of uh, of of ethics and property rights and all that right? Right, right. And, and uh, sorry, Lysander Sp- uh, Spooner's book is called "No Treason: The Constitution of No Authority." Came out in 1870, which, of course, is a uh, hundred years uh, give or take uh, p- post-revolution. But uh, yeah, no, it, it's it's uh, primitive societies are not like the state is a step forward from primitive uh, societies. Although it seems like primitive societies are a little bit more sustainable <laughs> than modern fiat-driven uh, governments. Right. So,
7: you, so you don't think that th- this this type of of uh, society would arise naturally? It's only gonna arise out
0: of choice. What? it's it not going to arrive naturally, it's only going to arrive out of choice. Do you mean in terms of inevitability?
4: Yeah
0: mm. Oh God, no, no, of course you have yeah. to you have to make the case, you have to argue for it. Um, because it's not going to happen inevitably. the The natural uh, the state naturally accumulates more and more power. And it gets bigger and bigger until it drives society into the ground. I mean, Zimbabwe didn't come out of nowhere, right? I mean, the destruction of the currency around the French Revolution didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, you have to um, make the case, make the argument and overcome the embedded interests that are currently profiting from the state in order to end up with that. But it starts in the home with the peaceful and reasonable treatment of children. Because if children grow up without being bullied, then they'll feel... Not at home in a coercive society.
7: Right. Okay. Well, I, I, I can't. I can't argue with that because that, that answers my question. Um, and probably I should read your book. Yeah.
0: Do check out uh, Everyday Anarchy. You can start with Practical Anarchy, which shows that even the society as we stand uh, uh, operates. Like they say, well, we how how a society can operate if government doesn't enforce contracts. But of course, lobbying, which is basically how governments run, is all enforced, not just in the absence of contracts, but with it actively being illegal, right? Just look at the Clinton Foundation. And if society – if if the state itself can run on contracts which can't possibly be enforced, we can't possibly need the state to enforce contracts. So, yeah, check it out and um, let me know what you think.
7: I will. I appreciate
0: your time. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate the call.
1: All right. Up next, we have Jan. Jan wrote in and said – You, Stefan, keep talking on your show how God is impossible to logically prove. You advocate faith to Christians, yet faith is an exercise in willpower, and you know that willpower isn't sustainable. We also can't use reason and faith at the same time. As you said once, human is halfway between God and animal. So let's see how we can move closer to God and further from animal. Science transforms our environment. Ethics transforms our relationships. But metaphysics transforms ourself. My claim to defend is, I have found a way to access God via the objective definition and bodily senses. I am not the first, but I am the best able to explain it as a philosopher of metaphysics. In effect, this is a method to hardwire a person for reward of pleasure from ethics or philosophy. Philosophy becomes an instinct instead of a verbal discipline. The exertion of will becomes the ease of habit. Let's make philosophy as rewarding to people as possible. Why do you say that God can't be logically proven? I think I just did, and that it's better than advocating for faith. So would you hear it? That's from Jan.
0: Jan, how are you doing tonight? Uh, Hello, Stefan. It's actually Jan, but... uh, No, Jan, I appreciate that. I don't want to Western Europe up your name. So (laughs) Jan, I appreciate that. Now, that was a whole series of fly-by headlines without much of an argument or a question. So perhaps you'd like to rephrase it in a way that I can participate in.
5: All right. All right. I, I would love it. I actually enclosed the link, but I thought I will be on the show in a month and you will have like uh, 15 minutes to, to look up the video, but, but you don't. So I will, Wait, I God will tell, didn't you. tell
0: you you'd been moved up in the queue. I thought you had access oh. to omniscient knowledge. Wait, what do you mean? You didn't know uh, yeah, more, more of a support character,
5: basically strengthening me for, for the conversation, <laughs> right. but not talking in my head. All right. Um, i'm not letting uh, any voices into my head sorry uh, <laughs> so uh, i when when i formulated my arguments i was referring to another show Uh, where a guy very similar to me was talking about spirituality, and I thought I can explain it better. Uh, You were talking about metaphysics, so uh, we need to use metaphysics to define God because uh, that's the proper instrument. And uh, one thing uh, you didn't get to last time was uh, what is the standard of
0: proof in metaphysics. Mm, Any any idea about that, or can I continue? Well, technically, the definition of God would form fall more into the realm of epistemology, which would be the study, study of truth. So metaphysics is the study of the nature of reality. Now, unless you're going to – if you want to say that God is, by definition, the nature of reality, then the proof of God would fall more into the realm of epistemology. But um, as far as the nature of realities goes – well, so to, to, to prove the nature of reality, well, you need to have uh, objectivity. You need to have definitions that are non-contradictory or non-self-contradictory because reality, objective reality, is universal, consistent, and non-contradictory, because atoms follow Mm -hmm. particular laws, the physical laws are universal. And so whatever statements you're going to make about reality as a whole must be Mm -hmm. objective and rational and, of course, consistent with the evidence provided to us by our senses. Of course,
5: of course. To my knowledge, epistemology is uh, the... Uh, Discipline of uh, knowledge. What what methods of knowledge do we have? It's not like directly about God. This is why uh, I am talking about metaphysics. So, uh, what is the standard of
0: proof in metaphysics? Again, you 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 just asked that question. I just answered it.
5: Yeah. yeah. Do you do you have any idea, or can can I
0: continue? No.
6: No.
5: All right. You you just asked that question.
0: What is the standard uh, of proof in metaphysics? I just gave
5: you an answer. Uh, it is it is simplicity. It is Occam's razor. We cannot access metaphysics directly, so we. Wait wait wait! wait, uh, wait.
7: You asked me.
0: You asked me for a definition. I gave it to you. Now yeah, what? You, you
5: said you said that uh, that you said that the area of God, uh, the, the discipline responsible for God, like is epistemology. No no I no. Say. After
0: that, no no. That was that was the first thing we talked about. Then you asked mm-hmm. me for how we would know truth in the metaphysics, in the realm of metaphysics. And I talked about empiricism, non-self contradiction in say, conjectures and conformity with empirical evidence provided to us through the senses. And that's where I think we may have lost the thread a little bit.
5: I I agree, I agree. Uh, While we have all of that, we cannot go against any of that, of course. Now we make some kind of statement and uh, let's say we have two statements about metaphysics, which are both non-contradictory and in accordance with science. Mm, so which one do we choose? If we have two possible statements about metaphysics. Uh, I, I will argue that uh, we choose the simpler one because of a cancer razor. This, this, uh, so the, uh, this standard of proof in metaphysics is also the simplicity, the efficiency. So, uh, when we make statements about metaphysics, the simpler ones are the more probably true. And uh, no, uh, I well, would
0: not, no, I would not agree with that. No, I would not, uh, because so that, that my definition was it has to be rational, mm-hmm. consistent with reason, and consistent with universality, and consistent with mm-hmm. the evidence of the senses. Yes. So, simplicity yeah, I mean, I, I, I in no way, don't... shape, or form was part of my formulation. Now, you can argue for a different formulation, but that wasn't what I said. I I did
5: not contradict you. I, I just didn't want to repeat all of that you said that is non, non-contradictory uh, in it's with itself, with senses, with science, and so on. And if
0: Occam's razor do says in any two explanations, the simpler tends to be true. It doesn't mean that the mm-hmm. only standard of truth is for this statement to be simple.
5: Yeah, yes, that t- tends to be true, right. Uh, but if you, we have two competing statements of high qualities that you mentioned, then uh, we will tend to choose the simpler one. Uh,
0: okay. I mean, that's that may be a rough guideline. It's not a proof, but I'm certainly willing to accept Occam's razor. It can be helpful. So uh, if you'd like mm-hmm. to move on. Oh, very well.
5: Uh, when, when you define things, then uh, I have uh, found a phenomenon. When you define things, uh, you can... Um, the simpler you you get, the more true it tends to be. And the simplest uh, statements of metaphysics are those that you mentioned: the first principles of logic, the non uh, the identity, non contradiction, excluded middle. These are metaphysical statements. The source on this is uh, Steve Patterson, another public philosopher. Uh, so when we want to know something about uh, let's say God that is hiding somewhere in metaphysics then we need to say something very very simple that is so simple that is it has no alternative And uh, I will introduce you to one such a simple statement. Uh, when you when you look at the universe you see a lot of different kind of stuff you see uh, space uh, you see time, matter, light, uh, heat and so on. These are very uh, seemingly very different things and what is this, the simplest statement that we can say about these things are that uh, they all are derived from one thing, one basic thing, one basic substance that uh, is res- responsible for, for them all, that is unchanging, that is like invisible but is, uh, is maintaining everything, the identity of everything. Now, we have this metaphysical statement. Do you, now, we ask, is there anything in empirical sciences that supports that? And uh, why? Yeah, there is. There is There is uh, the, the equation that everybody knows. It is the E equals mc squared that you, of course, mention in your book Against the Gods. And what does this um, equation says? It says that uh, energy equals mass times the speed of light. Uh, It means... uh, Speed of light squared. uh, Speed of light squared, correct, sorry. So uh, it means that uh, mass, um, the speed of light squared is uh, like a multiplicator. So it means that the mass is made of a lot of energy. You get a lot of energy from a little mass. That's basically what the equation says. Now, but what, what is energy? You, you see a lot of uh, types of energy all around you, but uh, a pure energy, the E in the equation, it's like nowhere to be found by a bare eye. Uh, this is very, uh, and yet everything is made of it. Even scientists claim I'm sorry, that uh, scientists I'm, I'm just, just
0: a little lost. You're saying energy is not available to the naked pure, eye? Pure,
5: pure energy that is like a non observable thing. You Everywhere you see some kind of uh, carrier particle or wave that is a form of energy that is convertible to other forms, but uh, nowhere you see this uh, E, letter E, that equals mc squared.
0: That's, but you can um, see energy in a lightning strike or a match or a fire or a nuclear explosion or
5: yes, water yes, wheel. That I is, mean. That is, that is uh, some kind of matter like an electron or an ion or... Oh uh, yeah, electron, ion. It, that's a carrier particle. Lots of carrier particles together, carrying some kind of energy. But you, you, you can even store it somewhere. But it's, all you do. You transfer it to some kind
0: of other carrier particles. It's like, yeah, but, uh, but it's visible. That's plasma. what I Energy sometimes is visible, isn't it? I mean, the sun it's is d- is energy. It's a giant. Bomb. It's, and it's again, very visible. again,
5: it's matter, it's it's matter,
0: and so with which means
5: uh, it's matter is carrier particles together, and there is a large, uh, let's say, large infusion of energy. There is it important? That, aer- is
0: it important to the argument that energy be invisible? Because I'm willing to move on. Yes, yes, not. yes, yes. Oh, it is okay. Well, then, then we have to figure out why I can't figure out why energy is invisible when I feel like I see it all the time. I mean, I got studio uh, lights you, here that are shining photons into my brain and under the camera. And I would certainly know if there was a power failure, uh, I would know because things would get pretty, pretty dark. Um, right? That's, so.
5: that's not, not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you see many forms of energy and you can see that all uh, they seem to be convertible on, to each other. So I can see energy.
0: <laughs> you you said see I see forms. many
5: forms of energy. You can see forms of energy, but you cannot see the one universal uh, primordial substance that is called E uh, that and equals mc squared.
0: A primordial substance? What, what, yeah, is, yeah. what is that? Uh, all all of
5: the forms of energy that you can see, they require space. They take up space.
0: But energy is and not the same as substance, is it? Uh, That's the one that is in the equation. I mean, it um, can't be because energy and mass are on opposite sides of the equal sign. They can't be identical.
4: Yes,
5: yes, yes, yes. Good, good, that good. Uh, Well, that you noticed because uh, there are two basic concepts of energy. First one is a formless, formless one. And the other is everything else on the other side of the equation. And we can see the scientists have noticed this electric energy and heat and light and so on, and they postulated this one central concept of the
0: universal energy that is responsible for all of them somehow. But this, so so there's two kinds of energy, There's the one that Einstein is talking about and then there's another universal one that other scientists have talked about. No, no, there's
5: the Einstein is, well, uh, Einstein didn't come up with, the, with this equation, but uh, the, this is the universal one. This is that you can find in matter, you can find it in everything. And uh, then there are forms, but it takes forms. You can, but uh, you can see the electric energy and you can com- convert it to heat or, uh, but how to sorry to interrupt. I understand,
0: whatever. I understand how electricity works. I guess my question, Jan, is how do we know the presence of this universal energy if it doesn't show up empirically? How is it measured? How is it detected? How is it known?
5: Yes, yes, that's what that's why I was talking about. Uh, one of the standards of proof in metaphysics, which is the simplest possible statement. We, yeah, but we it's, not, it's pos- not
0: a simple statement to say that there's a universal undetectable energy. It is the simplest
5: way for the universe to be. We we see, uh, we, we see lots of forms of energy, and we see that they are converted to each other. And the scientists have postulated this one basic uh, like uh, basic currency
0: that translate within them all. No, but that's not not a simple statement at all. I mean, if there's a vacuum, there's a vacuum. It's empty. That's pretty simple. But if you say it's filled with undetectable energy,
7: that's not simple at all.
0: That's saying that something which is undetectable exists. That's a contradiction to everything else in science. The whole point of something that's undetectable Mm -hmm. is it doesn't exist. If you can walk through a doorway because there's no door there, saying there's no door there is a pretty simple statement. Saying that there's... A universal energy door there that you can't detect doesn't seem to be simple at all. It seems to be confusing um, and complicating things enormously. Well, uh, but it is the simplest way for the universe to be. Let's
5: say uh, if, uh, let's say you need to explain why the universe exists. It is simpler to explain one kind of substance, like a basic materia, than explain a dozen uh, or a half dozen
0: of them. If you well, say, no, not if you're you, wrong. Right. I mean, I think that the correct answer at the moment, according to science, mm-hmm. about why does the universe exist is we don't know. I think coming up with answers that involve universal undetectable energy is not well, an answer. Neither is it simple.
5: It's it's science that comes up with e equals m c squared. I'm just telling you
0: what it says. Yes, but energy is not everywhere in the universe and undetectable.
5: Well, I I'm not I wasn't saying that
0: it's. Uh, what do you mean by undetectable? Because, well, there's energy you can detect, like mm-hmm. potential or kinetic energy. There's nuclear energy. There's strong and weak atomic mm-hmm. forces. There's lots of different kinds. It's water power. There's wind power. Mm-hmm. There's the motive power that gets you up the stairs when yes. you're finished uh, recording in the basement. There is lots of energy that we can record. And we know the difference between energy and the absence of energy you know you turn to flick on a light yes, if the yes. light gets bright well look you've got electricity running through hey dude let me finish talking I'll, I'll finish talking i gave you a lot of space to talk I'm, let me I'm answer sorry. the I'm damn sorry. question with you talking in my ear that's an unwanted energy i, I don't <laughs> want to have in my ear okay let me finish and then I'll, I'll shut up all right so you turn on the light and if the light goes on then the electricity is running through that magic filament that goes between the whatever right in, in the light bulb and if the light doesn't go on, well, either the light bulb is broken, or the electrical connections in the lamp are broken, or the cord is broken, or it's not plugged in, or if it is plugged in and none of those are broken, then the plug isn't the the the, um, the socket isn't supplying electricity. So you know the difference between the presence of energy and the absence of energy in something as simple as turning on a uh, a light bulb. And so we know when energy is present, we know when energy is absent. Saying that there's some universal energy that is present always. But which is generally undetectable, or is undetectable as a whole, is not a simple explanation. Neither is it an empirical explanation. And if the question is, where did the universe come from? The correct answer right now is, we don't know, but we're looking.
5: All right. So you mentioned uh, how these forms of energy are converting to each other by what we do. So, and... uh, what is what is controversial, or, or um, I I know it may seem seem like a explanation out of nowhere, but when scientists see that all energy forms are convertible to each other, we do some things, we lose some some energies uh, lost, of course, but the, uh, they uh, they know that the energy cannot be created or destroyed. That is thermodynamics. That is the basic of logic. And because the energy cannot be created or destroyed, only converted, they have postulated this concept, this uh, uh, Einstein's energy, as you said, this basic one. And also uh, because of Big Bang Theory, uh, they say that the universe was in a single, like a very small point at the same time, all of it. Which is why the primordial, uh, at this point, space could not exist. And all of the, the forms that we know, they take up space. So where did these forms come from? They had to come from some basic stuff. This is all I'm sorry, saying. sorry, which, which
0: forms? Well, well, I'm, I lost where we were in terms of forms. Form,
5: yeah. well, well, pretty much anything. I, as I said, all forms of uh, energy take up space. Also objects take up space. But the scientists say, you mean that, like an asteroid uh, or something, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, so and, yeah, asteroids,
5: okay, yeah. And the scientists said that, uh, in the beginning, uh, the universe was basically almost uh, practically one tiny point, it is as if uh, all that stuff that the universe is made of did not take up space back then, so uh. This is why there was the, uh, there <coughs> I had to be only one.
2: <coughs> so, sorry, <I'm> sorry. <coughs> oh my goodness! <coughs>
0: sorry, There's something to cut out. Hang on. I'm sorry. <coughs> I just had a Thank sip you. of a decaf latte, and half of it went up my nose. Or reasons I can't simply fear them. Oh my god! Oh. The universal don't, stuff don't. is attacking my brain. <laughs> Hang on a sec. Sorry. <coughs> <coughs> wow. That was one of the worst drink blowbacks I've ever had in my life. I apologize, Jan. <laughs> Please uh, continue. No, no, no problem. So
5: uh, this is this is why this is why they say that there was one universal primordial stuff that the universe was made of that differentiated later into particles and so on and so on. It's I I was this is not controversial according to scientists, but if there is anything controversial. About it. I will, I would like to hear it if,
0: if you. Well, yeah, listen, as far as the origin of the universe stuff goes, it's not a philosophical topic. It's a topic for physics and physicists. It's not a topic for a philosophical show because nobody knows what the hell's Mm -hmm. going on down there. They're still working on all this kind of stuff. It's, you know, it's like saying, do you want to go and live in a house where there's barely a foundation? It's like, well, I can't live there because it's really, really a work in progress and they've only just started. So I'm not going to bring philosophy to bear on what is a problem of physics because nobody Mm -hmm. knows the amount of contradictory statements the amount of uncertainty the amount of roads less traveled as far as as knowledge goes is is far too wide and deep and prodigious for philosophy to have anything to say about you know 14 billion years ago what happened in the origins of the universe and it doesn't really have anything to do with how philosophy deals with the universe as it stands at the moment and Ethics and perception and free will and all of these things. Oh, so I, I, I can't I can't take philosophy back to the origin of things and say, well, a philosophy that is developed from an objective and rational universe, what would it have to say about a theoretical construct that may have nothing to do with reason? It's like I don't know. I mean, it's it's not it's not mm. valid at all. It's like saying what color is correct? I'm sorry. In math. Hang you, on, you hang talk, on, I'll... no, no, no. Still talking, still talking. Sorry, still you, you, no, uh, still, also... still talking. Still talking. Let me finish, and then you can talk, okay? But this talking in my ear stuff is more annoying than I can tell you, all right? I don't mind being interrupted by a latte coming out of my nose, but <laughs> I can't say much about that. So saying how does philosophy work at the origins of the universe is like saying how does the color of the font affect the truth of the mathematical theorem? It's like, well, it just doesn't apply. Now, as, but as far as that goes, when the universe began to expand or whatever the hell it did, well, there's stuff... And then there's nothing, and then there's more stuff. Like if you think of an asteroid field, there's an asteroid, and then there's a void with a couple of bits of hydrogen in it, and then there's another asteroid. And you know you're not hitting an asteroid when you can fly between them and not explode, you know, if you're Han Solo, right? So you've got stuff, you've got space, and then you've got more stuff. And so there's nothing universal about it all. And then there's a sun, which is a giant nuclear bomb going off for like 20 million years or whatever. There's a sun... And then there's not a sun, right? Like you look up into the night sky, there are stars and there's a whole lot of nothing in between those stars. So there's energy and then there's not energy, which is the space in between the stars. And then there's another twinkly little thing that is not a firefly, but it's something Betelgeuse 300 light years away or something. And so the idea that there's universal energy would mean (coughs) that the whole night sky would be the same color. That would be sort of universal energy. Or to say that there's universal energy mean that the daytime sky would be nothing but the sun. The sun would be everywhere. We would be the sun. Like There is the sun, which is the disk about the size of a dime held at arm's length, about the same size as the moon. There's the disk. And then there's a whole lot of not sun, which is like blue sky. And then at night, there's the moon. Uh, and then there's a whole lot of not moon which is the rest of the night sky. There are stars, and there's a whole lot of not stars, which is the space between Mm. the constellations. So saying that there's universal energy, when energy is concentrated and then not present in the case of, say, a a, a star or a sun, and then a non-sun, and that matter is there and then not there and then there again, if we think of doorway, to say it's all universal when the whole thing is that it's differentiated seems to me contradictory.
5: Oh, all right, I will start from the end, just just to get this out of the way. I wasn't saying that the energy is uh, uniform, uh, uniformly spread all over the universe. Uh, there is There are obviously concentrations and so on. I was just saying all the forms of energy are made fundamentally of the same basic stuff of energy. Mm, Dan, you mentioned like day and night differences. Uh, you know that the uh, human eye can uh, see like 300 uh, nanometers of light, and but there are kilometers and kilometers uh, of light wavelength below and above that. Uh, so we don't really see the night sky as it as it really is. Uh, but well, no, we, uh, you, we
0: do. Sorry to interrupt. I mean, I know that, but but I need just, to just so. But nanometers. we do. We do. We don't see the entire spectrum, but what we see is valid. Mm-hmm.
5: Yes, yes, yes. Of course, of course. Uh, this we what we see is valid, Yes, and what we can detect by machines also. But uh, then you also uh, raised objections like uh, the pursuit of metaphysics within and physics together. It's uh, firstly it's not possible, and secondly it's not useful. I I can concede that uh, it's not as useful as your great work in ethics. You are changing the world, and this is why. This is the main reason why I I am calling so late. I, I you are you are doing so so useful stuff that this is not as important. But lately you are talking much more about God, so I thought I will
0: bring my five cents. Uh, no, no, God then God is a very said, very to- important topic, and I, that's why I appreciate you bringing it up. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, you are you.
5: Um, if you if you can talk about God with uh, precise knowledge what it is, what, uh, it might help people. Or right. uh, I I had some success. Uh, me and uh, Steve Patterson have had success applying philosophy, basic logic to physics. We find this topic doable. Uh, Basically, one point, just an example, if uh, scientists say there is uh, multiverse and parallel universes and so on, then I will just raise the um, thermodynamics, energy cannot be created or destroyed, so how can we create the whole universes by our decision
0: in like a split moment? That's that's nonsense. I agree with you on that, Just. For, for the record, I think that this alternative universes thing is complete bullshit and could only arise out of a government program called pseudoscience. That's just my amateur opinion, but the idea that we are create, like there are more, you, there are more galaxies in the universe than there are grains of sand on the beaches of the world and each one of the galaxies has, what, a hundred billion stars. And, and the idea that, oh, I've scratched my right cheek instead of my left cheek. Oh, look, we've just created an entire alternative universe with all of that energy. You know, come on. I mean, this is, it's, it, it It takes a crazy person to even imagine that that could be true. Yeah.
5: That, that's why you do, you need philosophy when you go into science and now, oh, I'll, let me tell you why well, can we just maybe we can even get to the basic definition of God? We are very very close to that. Uh, when uh, when we when we yeah, God has to have consciousness, right?
0: Yes, I and, would certainly agree with that as the definition.
5: Yeah. So, where uh, where does consciousness uh, come from? You you. You're right that the consciousness is an effect of matter but uh, I would argue that consciousness is the effect of the electricity that is passing through brain because there are plenty of dead brains that have no energy or consciousness in them or no passing ener- uh, electricity but uh, it's, it's all part of the same stuff and uh, that means that the um, primordial energy, let's call it, had to have already this, this aspect within itself. So it had to be conscious in some sense. Uh, so we, we cannot say it is completely unconscious. Uh, can, can I go through the basic three stuff like omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence? Or should I rather like uh, answer the three objections that you have in the are uh, against the gods? Like yeah, you, yeah, I would
0: say the objections in the book would be would be good. Maybe just pick the first one, the the most important one that you think.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, y- y- this is basically the argument from biology. Uh, use the gods are portrayed uh, pop- popularly as uh, very complex and very complex things need uh, like evolution, a whole population to evolve to uh, to get from the cells, unicellular organism to basically a person. So and we don't have any any populations of gods or ecosystems of gods. So what? So it cannot be. Uh, well, you see, you see, I I was arguing by a very very basic physics. Uh, biology comes very much later in the uh, in the age of the universe. So if a god is possible, it has to be this uh, primordial basic substance. It cannot be like a, a guy on a cloud. And if you look at some medieval or not, or Renaissance philosophers like uh, Baruch Spinoza or yeah, yeah, Baruch Spinoza. And uh, he was uh, talking about uh, what I'm talking, basically and a the hylozoist God. Uh, I will, for the, for the audience, panpsychist, hylozoist means that uh, matter, there is no fundamental difference between living and dead matter. All matter in some is in some sense alive, and if, if it's put together in the right way, it will be basically living. And uh, panpsychists mean that uh, to, if it's living, it's also to some degree conscious. As a rock is as conscious as a rock can be, a person is as conscious as a person. Uh, the only weird implications it has uh, is that um, you know there there is some electricity on the sun or on, in the planet, and to that degree, a planet or a sun would be somewhat conscious. That's the only – it's like this simplifies things a lot but has just this one consequence.
0: I'm, I'm, uh, I, our, I, can't, I cannot follow what you're talking about here, Jan. I'm, I'm trying my um, best. I'm sorry. I'm,
6: no, I'm, 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 sorry. I'm trying uh, my
0: best. Like you, you got you to gotta get in the habit of building some syllogisms or something because it's just like <laughs> right. there's no difference between living and dead. There's electricity uh, no, in no the fundam- sun and the sun no has fundam- consciousness. That's kind of what I get out of this, but I don't really know what to make of any of that.
5: No, no, no fundamental difference. Like, uh, you could, see, uh, this is like, um, you don't want to be a dualist that there is a spirit and matter mixed together because then you, we got matter, but we cannot prove spirit.
0: Yeah, no, I so, agree with
5: that. So we, the way to do away with dualism is to say, basically, uh, the, where does the life or the consciousness come from? Uh, we say that it has to be already there. The only problem is that the uh, matter was too simple and there wasn't this uh, nerve electric current passing through it. So once we have that, there is
0: consciousness.
5: It's, it's already there. It, it just was latent in the matter.
0: Yeah, so to, to, to go back to the light analogy, if I switch on a lamp, It's not like the soul of the lamp has come alive. It's just that there's now energy passing through the filament of the lamp that there wasn't before. And when I switch it off, it stops. But saying there's no fundamental difference between the light being on and the light being off to me is not helpful. I mean, there is Uh, a difference.
5: it uh, it just wasn't put together in the right way to show show the lamp
0: as no, but the... there's a difference between the lamp being mm-hmm. on and the lamp being off, which is why we buy lamps to yes. have light. and the, and this difference is that uh,
5: one moment electricity is not in there and the other moment it's in there. Right.
0: So there's it. a difference. So saying there's no difference yeah. between light and death. If life is animated by a particular energy, and a dead mm. person is not animated by that energy anymore, saying there's no difference between life and death is like saying there's no yes. difference between a light being on and the light being off. But there is. Um,
5: yeah, I'm. I'm sorry if it, that's if that's how it sounds. I I meant that uh, it uh, it's a composite. Um, if you if you put together two things, you have uh, life, like a lamp and electricity. It's not like you. Uh, must give like two, uh, you must have a supernatural component in the lamp to make it uh, on.
0: Right. So but, there is a difference between life and death, and there is a difference between the lamp being on and the lamp being off. Yes, yes, there is a difference. But then difference. why are you it's telling not, me there's no difference between life and death for five minutes? Oh, I, I hope I wasn't. I, I hope I wasn't, but. But you do remember uh, talking I, uh, about uh, life and death. Yes, yes. Well, 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 I'm sorry, then, if I misunderstood. What point were you trying to make about life and death, that there is a difference?
5: There is a difference, but this difference is not uh, not the most absolute difference that you can imagine. It's a difference of a degree, not not a kind. It's like a big difference, but it's not like you would need to postulate a completely different so okay, why, why are we talking substance. about, I'm sorry
0: to interrupt, why are we talking about unmeasurable, extensive differences between death and life?
5: All right, because we are we are trying to get to understanding that all the universe is made of one kind of stuff. This stuff is basically everywhere, because even the space itself is like a form of energy, some scientists says, uh, most scientists actually. And this uh, universe or this basic substance cannot be said to be unconscious or dead. It can be said conscious and living. So, okay, but, but we well, have, if,
0: if if everything's made of one kind of stuff, why is there a periodic table of the elements?
5: That's the that's the introduction of space. In space, all this basic substance uh, arranged itself according to some mathematical rules into atoms, and these atoms are in the periodic table.
0: So uh, this and, and very, atoms, very... Are, atoms are the most essential elements of matter, right? I mean, you can I know you can go to subatomic particles yeah, and yeah. so on, but as far as differentiation goes between different kinds mm. of matter, atoms are the big fork in the road, right? So that's mm. the most elemental difference between stuff. So yes. what is the stuff that's more foundational than atoms? That is all one thing.
5: That's the Einstein's energy. That's the E in the equation. That's the, that's the reason why uh, various
0: forms of energy are convertible to each other. But convertible means that they're not the same. Convertible means, like if I mm-hmm. say I want to go and change my money into American dollars from Canadian mm-hmm. dollars, they'll say, well, this amount of Canadian dollars will buy you this amount of American dollars. I can convert mm-hmm. between the two. But saying that they're identical, that they're the same, would, would mean that there'd be no reason to convert between the two. If I say I want to convert American dollars into American dollars, they'll say, well, we don't need to, to do that because they're mm-hmm. the same. And so if you have yep. things that are not on the same side of the uh-huh. equation, they can't be identical.
1: Well, you,
5: this is this is philosophy. When you have in philosophy something uh not identical, then it's a very big difference. It's an absolute difference. But, but in physics, when you put together things like in a extreme pressure, like in inside the star, then what we see, uh, then a helium becomes carbon or iron. What, what we thought is different is suddenly looks convertible to each other. In, in physics, everything is. Yeah, they combine.
0: Yeah, the the yes, atoms yes, combine, combine into new materials, for sure, with the yes. pressure of, of heat. I mean, coal turns into diamonds with enough mm-hmm. pressure and time, right?
5: Yes. In in physics, everything is convertible and everything is variable, and there are differences, but they are relative to time temperature and
0: pressure and, and so on. And time, yeah. Uh, yes, and time. Bones become fossils. Um, like living creatures but, become bones become fossils, right? Yes. It becomes yes, Nancy Pelosi. yes. Okay. But there
5: is only there is only one primordial law. And that is the basically thermodynamics. The energy cannot be created or destroyed. It's eternal and is responsible for life. Well, no, energy can be
0: converted to matter and back.
5: Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. But uh, it's still the same uh, same amount of energy. Uh,
0: I, well, it is the same amount of energy. If you can do 100%, right? Which is I don't know how. I guess that's matter. When matter and antimatter collide, then you get that 100% conversion. But I think it's even pretty small with the nuclear. Weapon, which is uh, like one uh, or two percent, w- if I remember rightly, and it's tiny, no, tiny no, when all, it comes to burning uh, wood. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, all, No, all, all that did means
5: uh, we get some kind of leaks or byproducts that we didn't want, but it's still the
0: same amount of energy, like in total. Yeah. No, I agree era. with that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. But so, so, so but mm-hmm. matter. So, but when matter can be converted into energy, mm-hmm. and then back. In, sorry, when energy can be converted into matter, and then back into energy it may be the same amount of energy, but that doesn't mean that energy and matter are the same thing because there is that whole conversion process. Um, oh, day. Mm, or to give, sorry, you to, give could- a, to give an example, if let's say that I have a friction-free currency exchange, in other words, they will exchange currency without taking any overhead whatsoever, then I can convert a, a, a dollar Canadian into, say, mm-hmm. 75 cents US, right? And then I so mm-hmm. the next day I come back and I say I want – 75 cents US and they'll give me back a dollar Canadian because they are idiots and don't come up with any profit, mm-hmm. right? So then we have a yes. conversion back and forth with no loss. But no mm-hmm. one would say that the Canadian and the US dollars are exactly the same because there would be no reason to convert them otherwise.
5: Yeah, I see. If you if you use this analogy, it's like you go to the exchange and you exchange uh, US dollars for euro and uh, you get uh, an na- you get like half euro for one dollar and you get a bunch of other currencies like a little bit of um, uh, ruble or yen or lira and so on and you you do that a bunch of times and you end up with lots of different currencies and very little euro or dollar that's that's the losses but you still get the equivalent in total you still have like one us dollar the total amount right. is still there. They're, they're different. The currencies rid- are different. It's if you put them into really high pressure, they there are all the same stuff. That's that's what physics says. They can all be converted back back to the primordial stuff.
0: But convertibility doesn't equal the same stuff. Otherwise, there'd be no such yes, thing as convert- yes. like a, a hydrogen atom is a hydrogen atom because you don't need to convert. Right. If I give you a hydrogen atom and say. I want a hydrogen atom back. You can just give me back the same hydrogen atom. Nothing has changed. But if I give you coal and say I want a diamond, you've got to expend a whole bunch of energy in order to turn the coal into the diamond, and what comes out is is different, which is why you don't see a lot of women with a chunk of coal on their wedding ring, right? Right, right. So So they're not the same.
5: Convertibility is not the the same as as, uh, identity, you say.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can't claim that everything's the same if they have to be converted.
5: Yeah, it's it's a very good question. You you would uh, you would love a conversation that uh, Jordan Peterson had with uh, Duke Pesta. I think they they were talking about this stuff. This is like a, a this is like a vi- very high level questions. What how can this primordial substance be converted to basically these various sub currencies, let's let's call them. But, all right, it's not the same. It's not the same, but uh, it was the same. It used to be the same in the beginning of the universe.
0: Can we agree on that? I'm sorry, could you just repeat that again?
5: All right, the, I didn't, uh, the various uh, currencies or the forms of energy, they are not the same. They are convertible, but not the same. But they used to be same in the beginning of the
0: universe. In the big bang well see again I, I can't take philosophy back to the big bang because it's too much uncertainty too much uh flux and it's a question for yeah. theoretical physics physicists well, that they're still working on so i can't take philosophy back all, all right all right I, I
5: i thought that's actually necessary because you you need to be able to assert the first principle of identity so that you can uh, go and do ethics with it UPB. uh
0: because well, but there's no there's no doubt about the configuration of the universe in the present the configuration of oh. the universe in the in the big bang is not determined at the moment and is irrelevant to philosophy because philosophy is about the analysis of yeah, yeah, the uh, current uh, universe and truth reality virtue and so on like the configuration of matter at the big at the big bang 14 plus billion years ago has no relevance mm-hmm. on universally preferable behavior on earth in the present I will tell you what relevance it has you
5: have to be you can assert the principle of identity but if you want to be really sure about it not just like a language you cannot make language that goes against the principle of identity but if you want to make it stronger in your in your awareness you will find a physical equivalent of it you if you know physics you will find somewhere in physics where it applies which is basic one of those of thermodynamics. But why do that's- you
0: need to go to the one area in physics that is the most in flux in order to establish your conjecture? That's my question, you-, you know, because this is the mm-hmm. God of the gaps, right? Which is to say, well, I'm going to go to the one area where physicists are still poking around trying to figure things out, and that's where I'm going to find mm-hmm. my proof of God. It's like, well, no, that's not. A proof <laughs> is going to have something to do with the universe as it is, not the universe mm-hmm. that is indeterminate and still under hot debate, 14... Billion years ago or more, right? That, that's because, my question. Why on earth would you need to go to that one area of hot contention and confusion, and <clears throat> no layperson can conceive of what the hell's going on?
5: oh uh, because well, I was I was just now talking about the law of energy preservation, and to my knowledge, that is the least controversial area that is the one that the physicists are right but that's in the present about.
0: That that's all established and, and detectable and measurable and understandable in the present. So why are we going back to the origins of the universe?
5: Because when something is a fundamental law, then it will be valid in all time for all eternity. That's the basic of reality. Reality doesn't change because time goes goes on or you are in a different place.
0: Well, that That's is certainly useless. true for every aspect of the universe that philosophy is dealing with in the present. But nobody knows with any certainty what's going on with the origins of the universe. The Big Bang may not even be true. So who knows? I mean, why, why would it be relevant?
4: All right. all right.
5: Now, all right. Now, let's say, let's say we have some, some idea. Now, what, what do we use it for? Uh, well, uh, Stefan, uh, when uh, let's uh, let's go back to 2013. I was learning philosophy. I wasn't uh, learning yet this God stuff. But um, basically, how Aristotle gave me superpowers. I learned the trivium, the uh, first principles from my physics teacher, and I found that I got an enormous, enormous boost in my uh, meditation practice. It's. Gave me gave me a strength then to go to therapy. It was like an influx of energy, like uh, basically a religious experience uh, for every day for a year. Wait,
7: I'm At sorry, least. I'm sorry to interrupt.
5: Yeah. I really if meditation. Are, are, yeah, yeah. If you if you uh, you expressed a lot of uh, no no. Why are we talking about
0: meditation when we're talking about scientific proofs?
5: Because. This, you, are, you are asking how this is relevant right
0: now, today. Boy, you bring up meditation after we're talking about mm-hmm. universal principles. The yeah. relevance cannot be established that way, my friend. Come on, you understand that. If, if, you, if I go for you why, p- is, this re- why right. is the origin of the universe, mm-hmm. why are the physics of the origin of the universe relevant to present discussions of reality, and you say meditation, you understand. Well, yes, you you got to yes, step me yes. through that. Don't just drop that because it just looks ridiculous oh. from the outside.
5: I'm I'm sorry. All right, all right. Uh, this, as I, as I said, the metaphysics uh, is your idea about the world. What is the world?
0: Where are you? What are you in it? I uh, know metaphysics is the study of the nature of reality, not your idea yeah. about the world. I don't know what that even means. Well, well. All
5: right. So um. uh, let let me let me take a breathe in and breathe out. All right. Uh, you uh, the you build your uh, a worldview, and the more precise and closer to reality that worldview worldview is, the better it is. You, this is why we have philosophy. That is why we do our best to get closer to science. But it's not
0: my worldview. Philosophy is not about yeah, my course, worldview. It's course. about the, mo-
5: the truth yes 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 we are the closer the more objective that is the more we meet together in reality now uh, the question is what what is that reality that we are trying to get to together we um, you got enough to establish universal ethics and i took it and ran away with it it's awesome and uh, The ideas, the how you how you know this world is uh, the it mm, is basically it is a part of you. If you if you build if you build a very good idea about the world, you it's like a part of your brain that is very well built and that uh, improves you as a person, as a thinker, and so on. That's like an exercise you can you can do a uh, crossfit you can do trivium like uh, aristotle's principles verbal philo- philosophy and ethics and that's like a crossfit you get uh, to be a very fit person but then there is a um, way to do it a bit more thoroughly like uh, bodybuilding you get a better idea of what the universe are uh, i mean, sorry what the universe is and what you are in it and you build like more. You add more and more information, and then you simplify it, and you find the common denominator for all of that. And I have found a great benefit in this exercise, this uh,
0: so so called bodybuilding. Wait, we're still talking about meditation, um, right? Oh, wait, is bodybuilding an analogy for meditation? Yes. Yes. Or are you trying uh, to explain the relevance of meditation with reference to bodybuilding?
5: Bodybuilding is an analogy to building uh, philosophy. Uh, applying philosophy beyond what you need right now, right here, it is like applying philosophy to to physics. You will uh, the more you learn about the universe, it's a lot of stuff, and if you if you learn a lot and if you manage to simplify it into the most basic principles then that is the analogy to body building and there are some benefits from that
0: all right so the the problem here is that analogies are not arguments they're, they're fine to illustrate arguments but they're not arguments and the problem i guess i have jan is you know we've been batting this back and forth for about an hour i i frankly mm-hmm. haven't learned anything and it's not because i'm resistant to man if, if i could get a proof for god that would be pretty pretty fantastic. But uh, The problem is I don't know how what you talk about is translatable to the average person. You know, the the whole point for me of of what I do is what the hell is going on with your microphone? Are you moving around or? I'm I'm
5: sorry. That's my chair.
0: Oh, okay, Yeah. If you could not make loud sounds when you're on air, that would be great. Um, But for me, the point has always been to try and find a way to take complicated and challenging concepts and boil them down to convincing arguments acceptable and absorbable by the average person. I'm aiming for, and, and there's way smarter people in the audience on, as a whole, but I'm sort of aiming for 95 to 100 IQ. Mm-hmm. Can, and, and if I can go a little bit below that, fantastic. You know, if I can get down to, I don't know if I can get much below 90, but, you know, 90, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find ways to engage people. And to to make arguments about reality and about virtue and about politics and so on, boiled down to really simple things, kindergarten philosophy. You know, don't hit, Mm -hmm. don't steal, don't push, don't whatever, right? And if people want more theoretical justifications behind this, fantastic. But finding ways to get the basic ethics and basic nature of reality across to people, that's the job. It doesn't make much sense if you can invent a very complicated medicine that no one can figure out how to take in any reliable way you know like you take three drops on the second full moon and then you do a dance and then you do this and it's like nobody can follow that so it's like you've got a medicine that that can't help people because it's too complicated to to administer and so the challenge is that even if through another hour or two which i'm not going to do but if through another hour or two we could get close to some sort, i could get close to some sort of understanding i'm a smart guy i've studied philosophy for over 30 years i don't know what you're talking about And if I'm not, don't have a clue what you're talking about, how on earth is the average person who's never studied philosophy supposed to benefit from the wisdom that you're bringing? So my suggestion is like, I enjoy these conversations. I like the challenge. Don't get me wrong, but here's my challenge. So read the art of the argument or whatever you like that's going to help you understand. Just start working with syllogisms. Just start working with simple direct language. You know, you've studied your Aristotle. Just review. The dialogues of Plato are fantastic, like when he has Socrates make these arguments. They're in simple language. They're in easy-to-understand examples. They're simple um, uh, arguments, which are very, very powerful. Because if you're right, then you owe it to humanity to translate your very complicated and technical arguments or statements into something that's digestible by the common man. And if you can't do that, I don't really know what you're doing, because you're coming up with very, very complicated stuff that either people kind of just have to nod and say, well, Jan is really smart, and you are, and Jan is really verbal, and you are, and Jan is really well-educated, and you are, and just say, well, he must be right. But that's not the same as convincing them. That's just kind of intimidating them or or using an argument from authority. So my challenge to you is, you know, I I really want to understand what it is that you're talking about, boil it down to some syllogisms. You know, you've seen the parts in in my books where I just boil it right down to syllogisms or I make a simple argument in one paragraph. Uh, I've got a a new book that I'm working on that's uh, even better that way. But you need to boil it down to the point where people can understand it because if I don't understand it, then the idea that the average person untutored in philosophy is going to understand it is not comprehensible. And if your argument also relies upon knowing exactly what's happening in the origins of the universe, you're going to have to wait a long time because people have been working on that for thousands of years. They still don't have it resolved. So I would not rely on the origins of the universe. I'd rely on what is in the world and in the universe right now. And uh, I look forward to, I mean, it's a good exercise for you. And it'll be much more productive conversation for both of us if you can find a way to boil it down to simple and easy to understand arguments. Mm -hmm. Because You're talking about God and virtue and reality. And if you can't explain it to the average person, it's very elitist. And the whole point is to take philosophy out of the ivory tower, put it into the hands of the people so they can make better decisions. So I really thank you for your time. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening. Don't forget. Hang on. Hang on. uh, Don't forget to pick up your copy of the aforementioned The Art of the Argument, which you can get at theartoftheargument.com. And you can, of course, do some shopping at fdrurl.com. Help out the show at freedomainradio.com slash donate. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at freedomainradio.com. Thanks, everyone, so much for a wonderful evening, as usual. I'll talk to you soon.